Hey everyone, this is Deeg. I'm here today chatting with Sam Ajeste about Guild Wars, the economy, raids, all the good stuff. What's up, Sam? Well, I'm doing quite good. How about you, Deeg? I'm doing great, especially now that we got our audio issues fixed. Praise be. <laughs> praise be, indeed. And, okay. um, and praise be to you as well for pronouncing my name right. You know, you got well, it perfect. The benefit of having audio issues is I get to hear you pronounce it back to me once and I got it right the second time. So everyone gets to benefit. Uh, Definitely. So, Sam, I've been a big fan of yours for a long time. Um, watching your, your content about the Guild Wars economy, seeing your coverage of the Guild Wars rating scene. Um, bring it back for us. Give us your introduction to you. All right. Well, I guess we will have time to go on lengthily about how I got to the point where I am right now. So I'm just uh -huh. going to quickly explain what I do now, and then we'll get to, to dig all the way back, right? Uh, so what I'm doing right now is that as an ArenaNet partner, I am you know, acting as a content creator for the game, both following what I want to do for myself and also following a general guideline that I fixed myself for content in terms of what I want to show for Guild Wars 2. Okay. Uh, the main idea is that as a content creator, I get a few extra perks that allow me to, let's say, give a little bit of power to one area of the game or one side of the game. Okay. That is what I've been doing with the Raid League, for instance. So really what I'm doing is that on my free time, I do a few streams the areas of the game that I like, which is mostly raids, dungeons, strike missions. And what I'm doing over on YouTube is quite focused on the economy side of Guild Wars 2, which is something I've been taking part of for nearly seven years now. So it's been a fair amount of time. And uh, I guess I could also add that I, um, you know, I co-host slash handle part of the organization of the Raid League which is uh, one of the uh, you know, community events that are being organized on a monthly schedule. Mm -hmm. I guess that, that would be a, uh, a pretty all-encompassing description of what I do right now. Sam in a nutshell. I love it. Okay. You mentioned something about having some personal guidelines for what you do. I wonder if you could t elaborate on that a little. Yeah. So... As you know, Guild Wars 2 is a game that has been out for over eight years now. And it is a game that has endured quite a bit of issues. By issues, I mean stuff that you have already had the occasion to discuss at length with some other Guild Wars 2 streamers that have taken part in this podcast. Mm -hmm. uh, there have been some content drops that have led to quite a bit of the player base fleeing from this MMO to other MMOs. And also, uh, another thing that can be pointed out is the fact that uh, a lack of interest towards what the most veteran players would like to see done in the game has also created a little bit of discontent around these okay. areas as well. Hence, the idea, as a content creator, of having a few guidelines. Guidelines being, I have the opportunity to push forward a part of the game, I have an opportunity to talk about it, to showcase it, also to organize some events around it and get DAOs to be sponsored by Aaronanet. And as such, I want about half of my content to be not necessarily what I take 
the, the most pride in making or what I am most happy in making, but instead being something that I want to see happen in the game. Mm. For instance, the raiding scene has periclited for quite a while. Yeah. And I wanted to give a little bit of power to it, create opportunities. So when I got, you know, scouted to work at the raiding league, I was extremely happy to do so because I was like, okay, this is an opportunity to give a little bit of what I can bring to a project that deserves to be on the spotlight. Mm -hmm. This is what I mean by the personal guidelines. It's not only about what I want to do for myself, to grow my channel, to make it a hustle, or to, you know, make money from it or whatever it can be. Mm -hmm. It's an opportunity to make a game that I love better. Mm. That's a guideline. That's beautiful. That's a incredible ethic. Um, one of the things that I'm always scanning for whenever I'm plugging into a game is to find the people who aren't just consuming the game and what the game can bring to them, but who are looking for ways to give back to the game and to the community. Um, you spelled that out so deliberately, and I totally love that. And I, I see that in your work. Um, I think well, it's very... You. You're absolutely welcome and well-deserved. I think it's probably very easy for people who, especially who are focused on covering a game, to cover essentially what they're comfortable with and to focus on to say, like, I could imagine a world where you could say, I'm the just doing the economy content. That's what floats my boat. That's what makes me happy. That's easy enough. But take that extra step and say, I care about this community. I care about this game. And I care about it enough that I'm going to go a little bit out of my comfort zone or extend my comfort zone, maybe a better way of putting it, to do something that is really needed. Is It's just admirable, man. And I'm wanting to throw you some kudos. That's it. Thank you once more. Yeah. Um, yeah thank you. So I want to ask you about the Raid League. But before I do that, I know we need to back this up. So let's talk about chicken and the egg. What came first? Was it raiding and economy stuff or was it Guild Wars? Tell me about how you got into all these interests. All right. Well, as a matter of fact, Guild Wars came a little bit before the economy. And it's, it's a story mm -hmm. that I most enjoy telling when I'm, uh, when I'm doing my own streams because I think that it's a way to, to show people that you aren't necessarily stuck in an initial choice you make. But instead, you can find opportunities in whatever you're doing to, like, brighten your horizons. So the way it all happened is uh, I have this very good friend of mine, whom we'll call Max because that's actually his name, uh, whom I was playing a lot of MMORPGs with. Mm -hmm. So this Max person I met when I was, I think I met him when I was, like, 16 or, or 17. Yeah, probably 16. And... Uh, uh, he, him and I, we just played a lot of Korean grinders, so to speak, if you know what kind of MMORPG I hint at with this kind of expression. The, the mm. ones that are always advertised on the side banners of, of manga reading websites and, and other such places. Uh, so we used to play a little bit of that, uh, very, very like free-to-play MMORPGs. And at some point, he was like, I, I've heard of this game called Yours 2 that is being covered by a few YouTubers, French YouTubers that I'm following. At this point, I was like, okay, just you know, tell me more about it. I, I 
just told him I can't afford to pay a sub, which was the only reason why I never got into WoW was that uh-huh. I really couldn't afford a sub as uh, a teenager and then student. So I was like, okay, if the game is like a buy to play, I'm in. Or it's free, or if it's free to play, I would be in anyways. And so we both bought Guild Wars 2, started playing together. Then I had to focus a bit on my studies. And after, after like spending a little bit more time in the game, I found that I really, really enjoyed it. And at the time, I was studying business. Business as a whole, like very generic, general classes. So I had a little bit of marketing, a little bit of uh, you know, law about contracts and companies. I had a little bit of like macroeconomy, microeconomy. And finally, I had a class which was Introduction to Finance. Hmm. And that was back in 2014. It was exactly at that moment that I realized that I liked finance. I could also happen to do finance in Little Wars 2 by Uh learning about the trading post, the economy in general, and try and play my hand at it. Uh And so I brought the two together and simply started spending more time trying out what we saw in classes inside of the game. Didn't quite work out at first because I was missing a little bit of background on how the university economy itself was working. Okay. But, uh, but it did pick up, you know, and uh, after like a few months, I was already you know, making sizable in-game income. Mm-hmm. And uh, it kept going on and on. And that's how it took me to making some economy videos because at some point I felt like, all right, I, I get the feeling that I know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. And it's gotten to the point where I feel confident trying to explain it to others. Mm. So it was really, uh, you know, a long, a long time coming, all this economy thing. Like it, it really took off after some years. For the first two years, I interacted with Guild Wars 2. Uh, I was mostly a casual playing open world events, trying my hand at sure. dungeons. And it, you know, it just happened to be the economy thing that blossomed. Okay. Okay, that's a really cool story. I I would love to hear if you have any funny anecdotes about uh, those initial baby steps into Guild Wars economy, applying your finance learnings. People love to hear, <laughs> I think, the funny stories if you got one. I mean, the, there, were, there were a few occasions where I felt like I was being what the, uh, the, the more gaming-oriented people would call a big brain. Uh-huh. Uh, and I, you know, I attempted simply to, to do some of the stuff we, we saw in classes into the game. So I was like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick an item. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to study it a bit, look at how it went up and down, try and build a model around it, apply some of the finance formulas. And so I started doing that. And I, I felt like I had a good grasp on it. I was like, okay, solid chance it's going to go up. I'm going all in. And... Uh, that was a failure because I had picked a, uh, you know, an item that wasn't available in the game anymore. So so far it seemed good, and uh-huh. then Arnett simply re-released it like two weeks after, and that completely crushed <laughs> my first attempt. And I was like, you know, I had studied it, I had built the models, I was confident about this. I went all in. It was such a failure. That is how I realized that the game. And the real words are quite separate in their yeah. inner workings. 
And I was like, okay, now I, I should probably disconnect from the real world a bit and actually try and focus on what's happening inside of the game if I want to properly manage what I'm doing from now onwards. <laughs> That's beautiful. Yeah. So yeah, uh, uh, a, an item that had a like a static volume, like a finite amount of total items in the whole economy, suddenly uh, a whole bunch more availability a couple weeks later. Yeah, I mean... One of the things, one of my only ways of engaging with the economy in general for Guild Wars is occasionally I'll see people posting on the Reddit about um, either past incidents of people guessing about things changing or moving or a speculation about upcoming things. Um, it seems like a real fascinating world, but we'll get there. We'll get there. Um, okay, so... You made yourself some money in Guild Wars. I'm you get got your started though in the world of finance in the real world, and then you made a choice to start making content. Tell me about that choice. What inspired you to start showing up on camera, showing up on videos, and doing that kind of stuff? Uh, actually, if I look back at the history of my YouTube channel, the very first video that I ever released which has been since then uh, put on private, I believe, was what we call an anime music video. If you're familiar with the genre, mm -hmm. uh, you basically pick an anime, like a Japanese anime of your choice, choose a tune that's a little bit catchy or a little bit you know, uh, motivational, and then you mm -hmm. try and match some scenes from the anime to that. So I made like two of these, posted them on YouTube, uh, to my surprise, it actually got a few thousand views because AMVs were all the all the thing back then. Yeah, there was a real meta uh, for that at one point. Yeah, it was there, there was a meta for that quite definitely. But I was I was like one of the of these scrub makers of that. I mean, I I literally back in 2010 maybe I made that uh -huh. in Windows Movie Maker. Come on, nice. I, I can't fathom doing that ever again. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so that, that was the, the origin story. And then the, the next video that came was when Guild Wars 2 released, I, I felt like I would attempt to make a Let's Play. So I made a fresh character. I wanted to cover its adventures. I made one video. And then classes got suddenly super hard because I was, I was studying in quite the uh, elitist branches of the, of the French uh, university system. Okay. Or like let's say, a superior education system. So okay. I, uh, I completely crashed from the game and I didn't play it at all for 11 months, I think. Like, maybe a little bit less than that, maybe like eight, nine months. Mm -hmm. So I completely tossed the project aside and didn't make any content between 2012 and 2014. Mm -hmm. uh, as we get into, like, to 2014, I... Uh, I was already established within a PvE guild, Snow Crows, as a mm -hmm. matter of fact, and uh, we were we were just you know like playing together in the evenings, and like some dungeon tour streamers were all the rage. Uh, they were the ones garnering the most views on Twitch, alongside mm -hmm. maybe the uh, like the more uh, seasoned PvE uh, PvP players, mm -hmm. uh, and like some of my guildmates were like. You talk way too much. You'd make decent content, like a, a decent streamer, just because you can talk. And um, like I heard, I heard 
that coming from some of my mates, I completely dished the part about talking way too much. And was like, okay, I can talk. That's good. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a feature. I got this. <laughs> Not a bug. And, uh, yeah, you know, and I just, yeah, I just gave a hand at, at streaming. Like I, I made my very first stream on the 4th of July, 2014. What a memory. I, I have a very good memory of dates, actually. Okay. Like, uh, so I just, I just did that. And um, that was literally it. That's where, that's where it all started. I, I did that first stream. I was like, okay, I like this. And on the What'd side like of that, I was it? like, just the interaction with people. Uh-huh. Like, I, I didn't even have my face. I was playing on a rather bad laptop back at the time. So I, was, yeah. I wasn't even in like high settings. The game didn't even look beautiful. There wasn't my face. There was literally just a chat cover, my voice, and the voice of my mates on TeamSpeak as we did Dungeons. Uh-huh. And that was, that was it. That was the content. And still, I got a few viewers, like more than 10, and I was like, wow, how is this even possible? I'm nobody. Yeah. And yet I liked that. People chatted. I wrote back. I talked back. I liked it. And after, after a little bit of time, I, I streamed other stuff than Dungeons. I started streaming a little bit of open world farming. I figured out I'm doing stuff the right way. I'll just try and make one video about it. So I made a video about farming the Cust Shore meta events. Like the, you know, the map where there is the Arrow Dungeon. It yes. used to be one of the best farms in the game pre-Heart of Thorns. Well, okay. pre-Silver Wastes, actually. It was probably one of the best places to be. And so I, I made a video about that. It got 17 or 18,000 views. I was like, wow. Okay, they didn't get all of them back then. It got maybe like a few thousand as it went up. Like it, that has been over the years that it got to 17. Okay. And I was like, wow, that's so much. That's exciting. This video. And, and I got retweeted. I was like, okay, I'm just, I'm just going to try making like a, just a little bit of, of cuts here and there from the streaming content. Uh, try and make a few more written videos about the economy and just toss all of that together. And that's literally what what became my YouTube channel. Some goofy stream cuts and some more thought out economy content. Gotcha. So some you said I'm trying to recall a memory that I have. I think I remember hearing you talk about the summer of 2014 being kind of like the what you considered to be the prime of Guild Wars 2 streaming. Do I have that that correctly remembered? That this is like correct. something you would say? Okay. That is correct. What what I mean by the prime of Guild Wars 2 streaming for that period mm-hmm. is that it was probably, and when, when I say the summer of 2014, you could extend it until like the end of 2014. Mm-hmm. It, it might also have been because that was when I was most active. Like, I mean, I was streaming like four hours every day. Okay. I was really into this. What I call it the, the prime time is because there were people across the globe, not even playing together, but deciding to push one side of the game forward together. So you would have... Uh, streamers throughout the day hosting mm-hmm. each other to keep always one dungeon tour stream at the top of Twitch, at the top of Guild Wars 2 Twitch. Uh-huh. And that actually felt great because these were people I didn't even play with. They were people I didn't interact with 
much, even though we're maybe on the same region, like we're all on EU, and then hosting towards NA in the in the late evening for us. Mm-hmm. It, ju- it was just genuine interaction where people were like, okay, I entertained the people doing my dungeon tour, doing a little bit of goofing around after that. I'm going to host the next person. Who's going to host the next person? Who's going to host the next person? And whenever Passing the would, torch. Yeah, whenever you were turn up to, to Guild Wars 2's Twitch, you'd have a dungeon tour stream up with people, you know, like it was always the same chatters being tossed around, chatting to new people. And since there was a lot of interest into doing dungeons efficiently and joining them, etc., uh-huh. It just kept growing and flourishing, and that's uh-huh. what I would call to be the, the prime of a, of a game on Twitch. It's when the community isn't just following one person, it's when people genuinely enjoy the game and would hop on trying out anyone that some other person would recommend to just enjoy all the content. Mm-hmm. Which More is of a why, community of creators. Yeah, exactly. Like that's That's why I would call it the prime time. Of course, right now, Guild Wars 2 has, I would say, about the same amount of viewers at any given time of the day. It's just that they're more centered around personalities instead of being, you know, enjoying the game. Right. That's the only difference I would make. But that's that's a very personal take that I think can be challenged by a lot of people. Okay, fair. I get why... I get that, though. That having... There's something very cool that happens when people who are all making the choice to do something extra for the community all not just do something do their own thing but then communicate with each other work on each other's stuff one of my favorite things about doing this podcast and talking to people has been seeing people who i've talked to do their own stuff and connecting later and being like oh hey this person is streaming i'm gonna raid them and uh the sense of the greater community that comes from that is so fun, even in the limited way that I, that I get to do it. Um, so I, I can totally resonate with what you're saying. And it is an interesting phenomenon to see the focus of, let's call it um, Guild Wars Entertainment, uh, or uh, I'm, I'm not sure if it's a Guild Wars specific phenomenon or if, it, or if it's that way for any game, but seeing the focus on streaming go from being focused on the content of a game to being focused on the content of the creators and the personality of those creators over time. Um, that's a really interesting point you've made. And I'm asking myself is if that's a indicator about the game itself or if that's just the way things go generally. Do you have a perspective on that? I, I think in the case of Guild Wars 2, that matches what we were uh, mentioning earlier, you know, the content drought, the fact that some people, you know, bled out to, to other games. It's at some point, if the game isn't what's bringing you the entertainment, yeah, like as in watching any streamer as long as they play the game in, a, in an entertaining manner, then you, you start going around the personalities that make it entertaining or that are overall entertaining as personalities. It's, uh, it's a natural occurring thing as a game ages and, mm-hmm. and becomes less, you know, uh, how do you say that? Less motivating in and of itself. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's a naturally occurring thing around any game that doesn't, put much content up. Yeah, that doesn't reinvent itself constantly. 
that's that's actually the best way to put it. Thanks, Dean. Yeah. Yeah, and the I think the moments where you get to see a game like Guild Wars do that is when we see those major expansion drops that are so exciting. Definitely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So let's see, what should we talk about next? So I'm much we could get into. Um you know what? How about a little more back to basics? Let's lay a little more foundation here. Um, you said that when you started playing Guild Wars, you you played as a casual player, and for you, a big part of being involved in it was actually the the price, the the fact that it was a buy to play, not a subscription model. Um, I wonder if you could describe what else, as a new player, really jumped out at you about Guild Wars, and if those things have stuck with you over time. Well, actually, one of the very first things that hit me when I started playing Guild Wars 2 was, I think that was my first thought about it, is this is beautiful and the lore is amazing. Mm -hmm. These were the, the two original thoughts that I had. Since I never played the first Guild Wars game, most of my knowledge of the Guild Wars lore, the Guild Wars franchise lore in general, came from two things. The first one was binging the entirety of Wooden Potatoes channel. Oh, God, yes. Which I did throughout the summer of 2012. Gilorsu uh -huh. was releasing on uh, August 25th, 2012, uh, as the pre-release and the uh, official release being on the 28th. Uh, during the entirety of the month of July to August, I was binging Wooden Potatoes. Okay. 100%. In anticipation. Yeah, and for everything I didn't understand from his videos, I would read the Guild Wars 1 and Guild Wars 2 wikis. Anything I didn't get, I would actually read it. So I, I read countless pages of the wiki. Okay. Uh, and then the other thing that got me into, into the story was reading the Guild Wars 2 books, which I don't know if you've heard about. Yeah, yeah. There are three... Okay, well, then that's perfect. But, well, maybe for the, for the people watching this, yeah, there are please. three books that cover the story leading from Guild Wars 1 to Guild Wars 2 that are in no chronological order. Actually, they're in an inverted chronological order. The first book is called uh, Ghosts of Ascalon and covers the story of the Searing and uh, the, the Char and Human Alliance mm -hmm. from the perspective of a human and from a time point that's basically just a few years before the events of Guild Wars 2. Then the second book is uh, Destiny's Edge, I believe, the name of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and the the story is that well, basically of the of the like Destiny's Edge company, like the backstory of uh, Logan, Ritlock, Zoja, and the rest of the yeah. Merit squad. And finally, the third book, I believe, is Sea of Sorrows, and that one covers the story of how Lion's Arch came to be. Uh, these books were wonderful to read. Like mm. I really got into them. I read I read them a few times. I actually have a hard copy of the first one, which is my favorite here at home with me. Uh, I, I moved it everywhere I went. I kept that book around. Okay. I really I really vibe with it. Uh, uh, and uh, 
that that was one of the other things that got me into the game. So I, I really got into the game thinking this looks much more beautiful than the Korean slash Japanese MMORPGs I've been playing. Yeah. And it has such a great story, such a great lore build up. Like mm-hmm. wherever I went, I would interact with the objects, interact with the NPCs, read the chat lines. So I was in all regards, a casual. I wasn't playing the game for the game. I was playing the game for the story. I was just <laughs> out there reading everything, you know, capturing every event, every moment. I would redo story instances to, to like read the dialogue a second time from the perspective of having finished the event. It was uh-huh. read. Um, if I might say though, I, even though like the idea of enjoying game for story is considered casual, it didn't sound like you consumed it in a casual way at all. Sound like no, you I really was, you. I mean, to be frank, you nerded out, man. Yeah, I I, I was one hundred percent a nerd. Like yeah. I, you know, going like th- this is something that's going to resonate with the the podcast you made with Roca. Okay. Growing up as a teenager, I was really really into fantasy books. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I I didn't have much money, so I would I would happen to reread the same books maybe dozens of times sometimes because i didn't have money to buy new ones like um one one particular content dropped for for my reading experience was uh, when i got into harry potter and i i was waiting for the sixth tome to come out i had my money set aside for it and i didn't have anything else to read so i just read the fifth tome uh 50 times in a row until i knew the dialogues by heart all of them that's <laughs> that's the kind of nerd I was. Like I'm not, wow. I'm not ashamed of saying it. That's glorious. Any time I could get my hands on a little bit of cash from like mowing the lawn, uh, babysitting, whatever thing I could do, like cleaning mm-hmm. that car. You know, I was like, you know, that, there, there's a little bit of dust right there on the car. I could use a cleaning. You know, I could use a few euros. <laughs> So uh, I, I was I was really doing that. Every time I got money, I would go to the bookstore. I would get books and I would read them. So when I got into Gear Wars Two, I was like, I bought this game for for like I think it was forty five euros at the time, or maybe fifty euros. I was like, I'm gonna read all of that. I'm not, I'm not stopping right now. Literally, my my student job funds from the summer went into buying a decent laptop and buying Gear Wars Two. That was the two things I bought. Uh-huh. I bought Game Wars 2 first. I didn't have the laptop, so I was like, okay, I got the boxed game. I got it. It's sitting there on the desk. Now it's your motivation. Yeah. Yeah. So I was like, I'm going to get that, that uh, computer and read it. So when I got into it, I was like, I'm, I'm not going to get my money's worth of reading content. I'm okay. going to go through everything. So there was that. You know, just uh, me nerding out into the game. That's a beautiful story, Sam. Really enjoying books. Yeah. Yeah, you said you said an interesting thing uh, about getting your money's worth. That seems like an interesting kind of through line in both the interest in the finances and economics of the game. And I don't know, I think of someone it, being able to enjoy a book 50 times, there's a certain uh, economy of, uh, of attention that's kind of implied there. Um, I don't know. I'm just drawing that connection for you. I'm wondering if you hear if that makes any I'll, sense. Does that bring any truth I'll to you? I'll give you the connection actually, because that's uh, that's quite a, quite an easy one. 
not that easy anymore because um, my thoughts are going to fail me for one thing. Okay. Uh, so since I was really into books, you know, I at some point I was like, all right, I'm done with my fantasy books. I need more content. Okay. Uh, I was reading a lot of mangas first on paper, but then I got into reading them uh, as online scans and everything. So I was also consuming a lot of that content. Which is actually how I learned to read and speak English oh. through playing video games in English and reading scanlated manga. Nice. No joke. Okay. Nice. And, and I, I still have to give praise to my best friend of the time, the Robert and Collins, best dictionary ever. <laughs> and um, so, like putting putting that aside for a little bit, I naturally at some point I was like, okay, I'm done with my library. Uh, I'll just borrow mom and dad's, you know, that's, that's going to work out just fine. My mom was every bit of a scholar. She still is, actually. She is, uh, she's like a researcher into linguistics. Okay. Oh. And uh, yeah, quite, quite the hawker field. And she had so many books that she had from, from her like, studies. Cause she, she studied classical English literature and um, classical French literature. So that, mm-hmm kind of person so i just started you know drifting through her books and she on the side she enjoyed um like thriller books uh like uh, some agatha christie's uh june nespa you know all the all of these authors that made these like um like stories about novels about the, the police investigations murder crimes whatever crime thrillers really, that's, that's really not my thing so i tossed that aside and what was left philosophy like all the classical <laughs> literature so when I was in uh, when I was in the, my last year of high school, uh, this was like sixteen at the time. I mm-hmm. I was really into the philosophy class uh, back then. Uh, I actually had the, almost the best grades of my class in philosophy because I was really into it. Mm-hmm. And one of the one of the books that uh, my philosophy teacher had us read. Was uh, was about uh, one type of philosophy. That is exactly where my memory is going to fail me. I believe it is called asceticism. Ah, that's okay. that's like the word about it. And it's basically the art of contenting yourself of little because you do not need more than that to mm-hmm. achieve uh, enlightenment slash joy slash happiness, depending on what you're pursuing as a person. So I went super deep into that. And that's when I was like, okay, I, I don't necessarily need a lot of fluff to, to be happy with what I'm doing. Uh, so like, if I'm going to read a book, I'm going to read it until I've got my feelings, until I'm happy with it. Because mm-hmm. the moment when I'm happy with it is the moment when I'm going to move on to another book or another story or another universe. I treated every every book slash saga, series, whatever I would read, play, watch, whatever, as a universe. And I would go from one to the next, come back, visit another, you know, just enjoy all the little universes. And that's okay. what Guild Wars 2 was for me, you know, like the whole Guild Wars world. That was a universe waiting to be explored. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's exactly how I got so much into the lore, the story, and everything. I was like, I'm just, I'm just going to read all of that. That's until I get happiness from it. As long as I feel happiness from it, I see no reason to distinguish myself from the source of it. 
especially mm-hmm. if I don't have to put anything in it to keep it alive. It keeps itself alive. It's great. Uh, so that was it. And actually, the the account name that I that I got back then is the Greek word for the virtuous man, which mm. was the way it was described in the philosophy books I was so fond of. So that's like a full cycle. There you go. That is really interesting, Sam. Um, I'm curious to ask you about some of your favorite fantasy worlds other than Tyria. Sure. Uh, well, quite obviously, I, I went deep into Harry Potter, so that's okay. one of them. Uh, is, the whole, whole for Harry, Harry Potter, Potter, is there anything? Uh, is there any cross application of the Harry Potter fantasy world, or even Gilbert's fantasy world, and your interest in philosophy, or are these mainly like different things? I I actually kept them separate back then because I wasn't able to to take a step back and consider all of that as a whole. Uh-huh. Which is something that I do nowadays. Whenever I read a book, I, I try, you know, to put myself in the perspective of the run of the one reading it. Mm-hmm. And also I try to distinguish myself from the person that I am, to try and read it as the person it was destined to. And that's the reason mm-hmm. why I still manage to enjoy so much content nowadays. Like I, I actually read, absorb, go with a lot of content. That's not necessarily gonna gonna fit. The, the person I might seem to be, simply because I'm going to try and put myself in the shoes of the person it's made for. I'm going to be like, okay, if I was the person this is made for, would I like it? Mm-hmm. I just get into it and I like it. So that's that's good. Other universes... Uh-huh. Okay, sure. No, I, I want to ask you about that because that's really interesting, if I may. Um, so while you were talking about asceticism, I looked it up and just, just for a, a, a pithy understanding of it, and it says that it's about... Uh, distancing yourself from sorry i lost the line uh, characterized by the renunciation of material of material possessions and physical pleasures and to spend time fasting while concentrating on the practice of etc cetera, etc cetera. okay but it sounds like you almost when you consume uh something for enjoyment you don't just experience it as yourself but you allow yourself to experience it in Let me try to relate this to something that I'm passionate about and tell me if you think that there's some shared language there. So I, um, I love the dialectical practice of conversation and especially of talking to people who I disagree with, um, which is something I don't get to do a lot because I like to hear whenever I can the most robust and, and well well the most robust version of of a truth that I'm not familiar with or comfortable with. I like to test what I think and what I feel against. Not because I think that there's a um okay, this is a ending being a little bigger on the inside than I intended it to be, but I'll go with it for one sec. I think that there is a tendency in global discourse to um of course seek a tribe and to seek a common identity based on a tribe. Um and to uh, diminish the point of view of uh, a perceived enemy or perceived uh, someone who's against. And uh, to make a, um, what you would call a straw man of a point of view that doesn't agree with your own, 
So rather than saying, okay, like, let's say I'm for chocolate ice cream, or I'm for vanilla ice cream, and you look at vanilla ice cream, and you, the argument you put up isn't like, isn't like, it's this amazing creamy vanilla combination with the milk. It feels natural. Like it was supposed to go together. It was the original ice cream. No, you say, it's boring. It's not chocolate. You put up a straw man, a weak version of the argument. And to go through your life, looking at the weak version of the things you don't like or that don't agree with you as a way of feeling comfortable. And it sounds like maybe if I'm hearing this right, and maybe I'm not, that you are comfortable with understanding a version of the things that you consume that is like the best version for its intended, um, as you say, its intended audience. Um, does that resonate with you at all? It does actually resonate with me. And it's one of the reasons why I manage to this point to to be rather defensive of Ironnet and some of my content, if we, if we oh. bring this back to viewers too. Okay. Whenever there was a content drought or whenever there was something that people disagreed with or didn't understand, I always took the stance of of like things from Ironnet, but not even the designer side or the you know game lead side, but more like the investor side, mm -hmm. the the people who have stakes in the in the project. Which is like the way they do things is one that I fundamentally disagree with. However, I can see why it's happening. I can see the implications of it. I can see why it's actually working out for them better than following what I would like mm -hmm. would work out. Mm -hmm. And and this is the way I try to you know approach life in general. It's there is something that I'm going to disagree with or something that I'm like not going to like, but I'm going to try to understand why it's happening. And if it's, if it's happening and it keeps happening, that means that it's somehow working. Because mm -hmm. if something is failing, it fails maybe a few times and then it like disappears because it, it like died in and of itself. Uh, but if something actually produces, like continues in time, that means that it's working for its intended purpose. And so I'll, I'll try to figure out what was the purpose, who was the target of that purpose, and why mm -hmm. does it keep working? Because if I can't do that, then I'm just going to like, you know, cut myself out from what is happening, eventually become toxic, try and find an echo chamber to validate my own thinking, and at that point I will have lost. Because there will be no way... Of, of you know trying to to expand on my thinking or trying to broaden my horizons anymore. Mm -hmm. If I'm stuck within one thought, that means I probably failed somewhere. That's mm -hmm. the way I feel about it. And uh, and I got that indeed through like all of that philosophical teaching of distancing myself from materialistic things and trying to focus instead on just thinking about what I was doing or what I was consuming once, which is why I was able to to consume the same content so many times in a row in a repeated way i have a tendency like every every few years to pick one thing that i enjoyed some years back go through it again mm. figure out why i liked it by then do i still like it now did i like it more back then because i was the target uh, audience i was closer to it etc so I, I just try and figure out why it's good, why it's working, why it was maybe it's not working anymore. 
And that that really made me into the content creator that I am today. And some of my videos have been rather controversial in some respects like when the i don't know if you were aware of that period for instance but when path of fire released one of the cash grabs that are in it made was the mount license that yeah. we called the mount gate uh, back okay. then i took a stance where i defended our internet and i was like i hope that you will realize that we buy a box a boxed game that is heavily discounted we're paying 30 euros for path of fire if we wish to I got the 100 euros pack because I was like, okay, I've, I've played this game for so many thousands of hours. Yeah. If I don't put money into it at some point, I'm never going to do it. So I was mm-hmm. like, I'm going with the 100 pack. Okay. And that's, that's like the, the kind of thinking I was trying to, to convey to people. I was like, you guys need to realize that you paid 30 euros for one thing and they're going to need to have people live off of that and the studio thrive off of that mm-hmm. for the years to come until the next X-Pack because you guys are not going to spend it So what they're doing is a very well-crafted manner of acquiring funds through the, the people that are actually going to spend money. Of course, they won't make something that you want because you won't buy it. Even if it's the one thing you want, you won't buy it. And that by distanciating myself from what I wanted, which was to see more dungeons, raids, fractals, the content that I wanted to do, I was like, why are they just making the gem source stuff instead of the stuff that's actually going to you know, make people play, going to make me play harder, going to take right. me from four hours a day to six hours a day? Mm-hmm. You know, why aren't they doing that? And I was like, yeah, let me just distanciate myself from my like, instantaneous pleasure which was mm-hmm. playing the, the damn PV content. And I was like, okay, RNNet needs money. They will make what is going to sell for people. Why are people going to buy that? Because they enjoy cosmetics. Why are cosmetics working in this game? Because this game is, is actually visually attractive. Like It's not, it's not like uh, extremely uh, like chibi art or, or squashed or... Or, um, the art style like hangs it's, together. It's it's one of the things that yeah. initially drew me to it too. It's it's a beautiful game. So like I, I was like it, they built they built something that's so easy to develop from from an art artistic perspective. Mm-hmm. They can so they can add so much to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at that point, I was like, okay, everything they were doing makes sense. So if I'm gonna make a video on the topic, I'm not just gonna bash them and say, oh my god, that's so terrible. How dare they? make this kind of a cash grab when the content isn't even good. I was like, guys, you need to realize we're getting this, all of this for free. Or like you, you just pay 30 euros every two years, you get the rest of the game for free. Yeah. At some point, like that's going to be okay. Just, just let them do what they need for the studio to live. And if at the end of the day, we see that the, result, like the studio has awesome quarterly results and, and that it beats all the game of the structure, mm-hmm. Maybe we can raise the pitchforks. Maybe then we can say, okay, guys, like we've, you know, we've like drawn you in the cash. Maybe, maybe now you can do something. But first, let it happen. Figure out why it's happening. And that's it. Mm-hmm. it's I saw a talk at the GDC, uh, Game Developers mm-hmm. Conference, that was given by someone who produced 
AAA video games, then went into the mobile gaming space, then went back into doing AAA video games. And she was talking about um, her negative experience doing the, the mobile game stuff. One of the, the numbers that she shared that really fascinated me is that on, on the projects that she was working on, um, rough, roughly 1% of the audience, the top 1% of the audience accounted for about 30% of the game's revenue. The whales. You're hitting too close to home right there. Yeah, yeah. I wondered if that might happen. Uh, I mean, t to be fair, like, uh, in terms of money spent on games, I'm technically a whale too. Like, I always invest in the games that I care about for the same reason you're talking about. I recognize the value. I'm in a position to give money back, so I want to do that. Um, That's something I can definitely agree with. And yeah. Sense I'm taking. So thank um, you. Yeah, definitely. Like, I'm all you're about that. Everyone else, yeah. What's that? I mean, I would say you're you're doing like everyone else's work, like right there by you know giving back to the people who are making the content. That is to say, the game enjoy. You're doing great. Yeah, like you're, you're pushing the game in the good direction. Yeah, I I feel proud to put in money to a game, even yeah, if exactly. even if I don't get like the best thing out of it. Sometimes um, I'm doing the game I'm really nerding out on right now is a game called Planet Side, and I do yeah. that too. It's a game that has an optional monthly subscription that you don't really need. But I, I get it, because like I want to support these people. It's a free-to-play game like Guild Wars. Anyway, I won't get into that. But what I wanted to ask you about is my sense... First off, I hear your perspective about saying, um, look, let's not get too mad about, about a company making a free-to-play game selling microtransactions. Let's not get too mad about this. This is like, it's part of the deal. But I think a large part of what people were upset about at that time wasn't the fact that they were selling them, but the fact that it was a gambling kind of mechanic. And I wondered if you could respond to that. I mean, you you need, like, and everyone needs to, to realize one thing is that, first of all, adding the, adding the gambling aspect means that, uh, like, they will probably get more sales because you can't just get the one you want. So that's one part, you know, like from from a like uh, a financial manager point of view, uh -huh. that is the most efficient. Like you're, you're I buy it. creating a situation where you're going to get more revenue. Yeah. And the other thing that you need to realize is that I, as a, as a spender, I'm rather close to my money. So I'm going to I'm going to be like, OK, element of gambling that's not something I'll buy into because I know I'm going to get sucked in it. Now, I'll have details about that. Really, like, I'm, I was okay. a compulsive gambler at some point, and that was kind of bad. But oh, okay, okay. It is past experience. Like, yeah, past experiences. Like, um, but there is also such a thrill added to it. So, like, you, you can defend it on both ends. Like, from the financial manager point of view, you're going to be like, okay, people will, on average spend more because they won't get what they want on the first try. Mm -hmm. or they won't get what they want. Like if they want maybe five out of the 20 mounts, they won't get all five within the first five tries. They maybe need like 10 tries to get the five they want. Mm -hmm. And they'll be happy with the other stuff they got as well because it's, it's unlock that goes towards progression and progression feels good. It feels rewarding to people. Mm -hmm. when, you see, when you see that your, your wardrobe is filling up you feel rewarded, like you, you feel accomplished. And that's that's one of the things to put aside. So that's mm -hmm. that's like one thing that feels good to people. And 
the the thrilling aspect of gambling is not to be underestimated. Whenever you you gamble, you have a huge adrenaline shot because you're afraid it's going to fail. Mm-hmm. So your body is naturally going to put you into a heightened state of of like sensing. You'll feel good from that. You'll feel the thrill. And then it's even better if you do get what you wanted, because you're going to get that huge dopamine rush. You're going to be so happy you got what you wanted and so fast. It's going to feel so great. Mm -hmm. You you might even scream of excitement. So if if there was a board that decided to make it happen over at Arnonet, which I don't think, I think it was more like pushed from... uh, like the investor side of things, like as in go make us some money and find the most uh, efficient way to do so. But if at some point there was a decision taken at a board meeting or something, these were, I think, the arguments that were pushed forward. Mm-hmm. It's going to make us money. People will let it go towards account progression because at some point they will want all the amounts. So they will, they will keep collecting them one way or another. Mm-hmm. And finally, they'll get a thrill. They'll enjoy it. People... Like no matter how much we cry about loot boxes and, and elements of RNG, we enjoy them. It's exactly because we enjoy them and then feel like the, the crash from that adrenaline and dopamine that we start to hate them. Hmm. I don't know what you think about my explanation, but that's that's what I would go with. This is a no, I love this perspective because I think on the face of it, I disagree with it. And that makes it so okay. valuable to me. Um so I will say for myself that I am not a gambler. I've never cared to gamble. It's never particularly been attractive to me. Um, for some reason, I just don't have the kind of mind that really gets excited about, about gambling. So I, in some sense, I have a hard time relating to it. But I've given this topic a lot of thought. And one of the interesting, I think, uh, kind of, porous barriers, membranes in the system is between the acceptability of having a randomized outcome within the game world. Like if you're killing the, uh, the chalk Jarrett and going for an egg sack, let's say, versus having a randomized outcome from a financial transaction in the gem store. And why, why there's this commonly accepted idea that it's okay for that to happen on the chalk Jarrett with the egg sack, but it's not okay for it to happen in gem store and this is i think and tell me what your perception is but my perception is that it's the cultural majority of people who play games online see this see loot boxes for for pay as a bad thing and we saw when this this controversy happened we saw even like jim sterling covered it which a guy like him will rarely cover a game like guild wars so that was a real moment and it even though for me, I didn't particularly resonate with any side of the argument, because again, gambling not not an attractor to me. Um, I do see some differences between the in-the-game payoff versus the, the store payoff, which is, of course, all made much more gray by the fact that the economy has a two-way flow of resources between the gem store and the game world. I wonder... Um, if you could tell me your experience about, do you feel that that there's a difference? It sounds like just generally you're okay with the idea of of gambling, um, at any at any level, whether it's uh, you know a wallet in wallet out, or whether it's 
killing a boss and that you really like the random payoff and the feeling you get for you, for you personally and you think it's an okay thing to have in a game. Actually, I've matured over the years around that topic. And mm -hmm. one of my experiences that made me mature about that was uh, was actually one of these mobile games where the top 1% of the players make up 30% of the revenue. Like uh -huh. I, I played the highest grossing mobile game ever. So like, I'll, I'll maybe tell you about that a little bit later sure. on. But on, on the matter of... You know, financial microtransactions should give you a finite outcome. Uh, originally, I was like, not not gonna care because in the case of Guild Wars 2, it's indeed a two-way economy. I can get all the mounts using gold to gems. So mm -hmm. if someone else decides they are gonna use money to gems, it's on them. Mm -hmm. Then there is an element of RNG. They are probably, and that's what I was thinking at the time, they're probably doing it for the thrill of gambling. Otherwise, they would just, you know, farm gold, try their luck, and then, worst case, they lost a little bit of gold, but they did get a mount. So mm -hmm. It's really just okay. And, uh, and you know, that, that was the way I felt about it. I was like, if you, if you decide to put money on it and then you're unhappy, you just, you shouldn't have put the money on it. However, as I as I got more and more like into into like what we call gacha games, I figured out there is a major frustration in trying over and over for just one thing and not getting it. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is that is where the frustration comes from. And I I didn't I didn't feel the frustration before because I was you know a citizen again, very detached from whatever I had in the game. I was like I care about the account because that's what I put time into making in the way I like. Just like, for instance, I guess even even an, an asset would uh, would like his house, right? Mm -hmm. he, he built it probably, okay, maybe not with his own hands, but he built it the way he liked. Mm -hmm. So he might not care about everything that's in the house, but he, he cares about the house. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you see what I mean. And that's the way I felt about my account. I was like, maybe, like, I, I was gambling a lot at the ectoplasm thing. I was like, Lost 7,000 gold today? No problem. Gamble again tomorrow. Uh-huh. What's, what's going to happen, right? If, if I'm at zero gold, I'll just make more. No problem. Uh -huh. Just do okay. it. And I was like, sure, just, it's just going to happen. Uh, so I, I took a very distanced stance from these people spending real money onto gambling and then complaining about it. I was like, if you, if you didn't want to lose money, you didn't have to spend it in the first time. In the first mm -hmm. time, yeah. Uh, and then, as I got more and more into the into the the gacha games on mobile, like I, I guess the term gacha is widespread enough that I can use it with you uh, in the, in sure. the podcast. So I played between two thousand and seventeen, I believe, yeah, two thousand and seventeen until two thousand and twenty. I played Fate Grand Order. I don't know mm -hmm. if you know the name of that game. Not familiar. Okay, it's it's a you can you can Google it just to see the figures of revenue, and then you will probably like you know connect dots. It's mm -hmm. uh, it's based on a Japanese franchise called the like the, the Nasu Verse, which is like it it looks like such a huge universe, but it was originally created by a dude and his friends. Uh, in college, 
as they were just writing like in their in their free time. And now it's become such a huge franchise that it's like it makes extremely high-grossing movies that even get screening outside of Japan. Like huh. Anime movies. It's it's, it's one a real of the big IP. Franchise. Yeah, it's it's huge. If you if you look at it and think that it was started by two dudes in college, uh, living in a in a small dorm and just writing stuff, it, it becomes crazy to think about how big it is today. Okay. Uh, that that game, if you look at the figures, it's racking in millions every year it was the highest grossing gacha game multiple years in a row uh and i would i would like put money every now and then into it i was like when when it got to to the end of the year you had a a guaranteed what we call a guaranteed five stars you were guaranteed to get one of the best units okay and you would like pay 40 euros because there was there was a difference between let's say gems you acquired by playing the game and gems you Acquired by using money. They were like paid gems and unpaid gems, which is something I would like to see introduced in Guild Wars 2. And I, I made a video about that. Like I, I said it was one of the ways to explore revenue for Guild Wars 2. And uh, like I would just once a year spend the 40 euros and get, get the units. Maybe one of the units I wanted was still an element of RNG because it was one of the best units, just not the one I wanted. Uh, and then throughout the year, every now and then, I would put like 30, 20, 50, blah, 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 euros to, to try and get a unit I maybe wanted at some point when it was mm-hmm. rate up, when it was featured. And uh, the nail in the coffin that made me change the stance was uh, in 2020, I had saved up for about a year on, on in-game currency. I didn't put any money into it. I was like, I'm just going to save the unpaid gems until happened the rate up of the one unit I wanted. It took me, uh, it took me, I th- think, 720 gems to get it. I think something in that, that kind of magnitude. Okay. Which is, um, so like 30 gems is 10 tries at the randomizer. Okay. So if you do, if you do quick math, that's three times... 30 times 12 is 360, like, is, uh, 360, so that's 240 tries yeah. at the randomizer. Okay. The unit was supposed to be on a 2% rate up. So like you had 2% chance to get it. Ah. It could be 240 So you were likely to get it. Yeah. To get one. To get mm-hmm. one of them. And I was like, if, if I had used paid gems, for that instead of unpaid ones that would have amounted to over a thousand and five hundred dollars for one series of pixels in a mobile game and that's when it hit me that's when it hit me that what i got through effort and deemed to be no problem i got them playing the game i i, I roll the gambling machine playing the game it hit me that people actually spent that money to get to the same result I was like, okay, that's when it's not okay. Hmm. And that's when I, uh, I started leaning towards what you call a pity system, which is something that I think there should be in many areas of yours too. The concept of a pity system is, okay, you bash your head at the gambling a few times. And after enough times bashing your head at the gambling, you've accumulated pity. And then when the pity hits, mm-hmm. you get the one thing you were looking for. 
Yeah. And that's, that's, I think, the best way to approach gambling nowadays. And a lot of these mobile gacha games are leaning towards that model. The, the most successful one of last year and this early year, Genshin Impact, has such a system. That's why he's been making so much money. I think they've made a million dollar in transaction revenues. So like they, they paid all the cost, everything. They made a million profit in less than six months purely from that, which is okay. great for a small indie studio making mobile games. And that's, that's exactly the way I see things now. So now, like in hindsight, I realized that what I said back then could have been misinterpreted. I was like, if you're not happy, just, just grind and get it. Like, if you don't want to put the money that your IRL time bought you at your job into the game, since you're playing the game anyways, just use the in-game time you're putting in the game towards yeah. your IRL. And I was yeah. like, okay, some people are actually not going to do that. And these people are going to be so heavily frustrated. My stance on the subject is not correct. Yeah. So it sounds like you think gambling is okay. It just needs to be regulated. I think gambling is okay because it's actually a very good way of either generating revenue mm -hmm. or also regulating, uh, let's say, revenue in the game. And mm -hmm. Like what, what you can own like assets in a game. I think gambling actually weeds out a lot of stuff for that. And it's, it's also, like, once again, thrill, dopamine, enjoyment. A lot of people have that, so yeah. it's nice to have a little bit of element of RNG, gambling, etc. Like, I know you, you can gamble for precursors as well. Yeah. You can gamble you have to gamble. There are so many ways to gamble in the game. Yeah. That's good. It's just well, yeah, because... some people are going to enjoy it. It's good that it exists for them. Yeah. There are so many moments of but... random outcome, which in random outcome is, of course, not... Actually, I shouldn't use the word random. That's imprecise. Uh let's say uncertain outcome is the way the world works. It's the way life works. Um, sometimes I look at gambling and think like, okay, so like, for example, me sitting down and doing this podcast with you is a sort of gamble. It's an investment of effort and resources with an uncertain outcome. What, what outcomes do I care about? Some of them might be measurable. Maybe I want to get views or watch hours on YouTube. Maybe I'd like to have viewers on the Twitch. But maybe some of the outcomes that I want are less tangible, like to further my understanding, to make a connection, to develop my network, things like that. And in a sense, when we're gambling, you can take those kinds of outcomes and just skip right to them. Say, oh, I want to try again. I want to try again. I think like, what if I could just pay a fee to re-roll the podcast? You know what I'm saying? And to get a different outcome. To be like, oh, I don't like that one. Let's just try again. I don't like that one. Let's try again. And I think it's, I heard it put by a, a clinical psychologist who's some of whose work I've read that the thing that, and I'm, I'm not sure if this is, I'm a lay person consuming this information, I'm not an expert, but it matches up with my understanding, which is the thing that people usually value about pursuit isn't actually acquisition. It's the pursuit itself. It's the feeling of making meaningful progress towards a valued goal. So like that, nice I think, and in a way, gambling kind of hijacks that circuitry to say, oh, I can. And it's, it's why my understanding of people who actually do have a problem with gambling is that it's not so much the jackpot that they care about. It's the feeling that, of being able to get a jackpot that's interesting. And I think as 
there's been a, you know, um, the role of governments and societies, among many others, is to help us determine culturally what we think is okay. Like, for example, murder, not okay. I mean, there are exceptions, self-defense, etc., but generally not okay. Other, what, what else? Drug use. Mm, that one's not so sure. Like, it's kind of some are okay, some are not okay, some you have to get prescribed. Exactly. It's okay when it's prescribed. It's, it's okay when it's needed. When it's regulated, when it's managed. Yeah. And I think gambling is one of those things that culturally there's some uncertainty about, too. We definitely know it's possible for a healthy adult to enjoy gambling and to do it in a way that's responsible. But we also know that it's a tool that can ruin someone's life, like, say, unregulated drug access can do. And I'm not advocating a personal position. I'm just exploring the solution space here. I mean, you're, you're um, very correct in what you're saying, I think. And so I think when people see a gambling-type mechanic in a video game that can be directly linked to your wallet, even if it's not necessary, but that can be directly linked, the, the natural thing to do is to apply your morality about gambling outside the game and put that straight onto the game, even if it's not a complete fit. And that is where I see a lot of the reaction. And I mean, I look at some of the like worst case scenarios, like some of these gacha games. I also look at um, EA's portfolio of sports games, especially, um, what's that soccer game? Oh, sorry, not soccer, football game they have called. Are you familiar with it? Um, uh, from, from EA, I just remember the, the, the Battlefront 2. Oh yes. yeah, and and how they murdered Star Wars with microtransactions yeah, like, I mean, and stuff. I, like, I was a huge Star Wars fan. I I sunk five to six thousand hours into Battlefront Two, two thousand and five, the, the uh -huh. PS2. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah, that was my teenage game. I sunk five k plus hours into it. Oh my! I would, that's I would tell amazing. the kids, I was like, "Yo, uh, class ended early. Wanna wanna go home and play Battlefront Two? I, I would bring my friends home with." Play together on the PS2. That's, nice, nice. That was, that was the thing. So, so yeah, like they they brutally murdered it. And uh, and how did they murder it? They murdered it because they overplayed their hands with the gambling stuff. And there's more to it than that because you can still have a good game with some gambling on top of it that people don't like. People people will like the game that's there below the gambling, but there's a perception of. Like, I think we are continually doing value assessments of how, we, how we're using our time, all right? And people don't like the feeling of being taken advantage of. Oh, I've been slogging away at this game for two hours. I had a good time, but I'm exhausted. Let's see the progress I made. Oh, I could have made the same progress just by just dropping a few bucks in. And look at this guy who's killing me every single time with the blinged out Darth Vader with the gold rims or whatever it is. You know, I don't know. Um, so uh, it goes against the, in gaming, it goes against the, this principle that I think is held very closely of fun and fair play in our games, which I think is less prized in other markets, like the Korean market, one you described earlier. But in the Western mm -hmm. market, is certainly highly valued to the point where if you, if you violate those principles to too severely, you get punished, as we saw with EA and Star Wars. Anyway, that's a bunch of musings. I think it's a, it's worthwhile to examine these things. 
Um, but before I move on to anything else, uh, any thoughts on what I just said? Well, I I agree with you on that. Uh, like for, for once, since I play gacha games like Japanese ones where there are a lot of whales, I I can like one of the games I play, you can feel that it is pay to win. Like the mm. people who, who whale on, on the gambling, they have the best units. They win in PvP. Like mm-hmm. you, you can beat them with uh, with like a wombo combo team that you that you make up with whatever is available. Mm-hmm. But your success rate is so low, yeah. it could be worthwhile spending on the game just to win. That is where I think things are wrong, and where I totally agree with you is that what you can get from spending money should always be cosmetic mm-hmm. or a time skip uh, mm. on the grind. It should never be pay to win, which is which is something that is also very important for our society. Like when you brought society in and different ways of approaching the subject, that was very interesting. Mm-hmm. I work a solid eight hours a day. Uh-huh. If you take the commuting time out and you take the lunch time out and whatever breaks I'm having throughout the day, you could say I'm active from 8 a.m. to 7 to 8 p.m. Uh-huh. and work. When I get home, I still have to make dinner. Uh-huh. I still have to take care of the house, maybe clean around, whatever. And I might not have the time that I used to have as a student to play video games. So since the only constraint that we have in a given day, is in a given life, is time, uh-huh. it's a matter of how you decide to spend it. If I spend more time at my workplace, make more money, then I should be able to exchange that time that I spent at the workplace uh-huh. that I got in the form of money for time that I could have spent in the game using the money. That is exactly where things become ethical and ethical, as long as it's not a pay to win, as mm-hmm. in I can buy the best weapon and kill it with it, then I'm completely fine with a lot of stuff being available for money. Mm. And that is also one thing that we used to say back when I started all the stuff in the Guild Wars 2 economy, we were like, if you're not able to play the training post well, you're better off getting uh, like a shift at McDonald's because your dollar per hour is going to translate into better gold per hour than you can mm-hmm. farming. As long that as you enjoy flipping burgers, yeah. As long as you enjoy flipping burgers, of course. <laughs> but do you, like, that, that takes us to another question. Would you really enjoy farming? Would you really Actually, enjoy numbingly optimized farming? I'm not talking like farming with a movie on the side. I'm talking farming, looking at everything you're doing, micromanaging your inventory at every step of loot you're getting, etc. It's tiring. It's just so tiring. I have a complicated reaction to that, which is today I never do it. My time feels too valuable, but I miss, I kind of miss it. I kind of miss my student days. I feel like my time was just ever like, like I had so much, how did I have so much time? I don't know. It's time (laughs) as a teenager is ever expanding. That's the only way I can explain it. It's within uh, the hour you get another hour and another hour. It's just—it's a space-time phenomenon. Like there's something about yeah, it. Like there's something metaphysical, I think. Quite so. <laughs> but but yeah, like, and I used to have this attitude because I, I I played World of Warcraft back in the day um, mm-hmm. when it first came out, and one of the things that I grew to appreciate more and more over time about that game 
is that if you saw somebody pull something off inside the game, you knew it was because they put in the time and they put in the effort and they made the connections. Like they didn't, no one was like selling raid clears in the original world of Warcraft. Like the economy was not that sophisticated. Um, there was RMT, of course, uh, real money transactions, you know, that's been around as, as long as game economies have been around, but, um, and bots and et cetera. But for the most part, like, and the, the, one of the clear memories I have, and I, I keep bringing this up is there is this, I, I used to, um, I played Horde. I was an orc warrior. I loved it. Playing warrior in original WoW was so fun because you could do so many different things and you were so good at it. You sucked so bad at the start, but after you got a lot of gear, you were so good. You were, you become, you become like a God when you have support. But there's this one orc warrior and I'd always see him in the main city. And he always had the best gear in every single slot. His name was Bogus, I remember. And he was in a guild called Void. And he was like the mega badass. And I'd occasionally bump into him doing PvP, and he was just like clearing house. He was like five enemies all roll up in one. Like, that, that guy, to me, had such a high social status in my, at the time, I guess I was in college when that happened, in my college-aged brain. And and I, I yearn to recreate that sense of value in my investment in games. But for me, over time, it's gone from getting value out of being very good and very um, merit, having a lot of uh, achievements within a game. Not necessarily literal, literal achievements, but things that are valued and that you can show off, um, mm -hmm. like a world first or whatever, that kind of stuff. To getting... To, uh, the ways I have to give value are much more complicated. I have to do podcasts. Otherwise, I don't enjoy my games. It's really screwed up and weird. Um, I have to have these community interactions. Otherwise, for me, I don't have fun. I feel like that's actually quite normal. It's just, as a person, you've changed. And the things that bring you joy, that bring you the rewarding feeling, that bring you the enjoyment, that has changed as well. Like... When you're, and it, it's all, it also has to do something with the way we grew up as individuals. Mm. Whenever you're growing up, you're literally growing up. You're always looking up. You're looking towards someone or something else. Mm -hmm. And at that point, you're looking at what the other has and you're like, okay, I want to I wanna do the same. I want to be the same. I also want to be the one glowing. You, like you're always like whenever you're you're constructing yourself as a child an individual you 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 don't construct from nothing you pick up parts from other individual other people yeah that's how you construct yourself uh but when when you're actually a, a grown-up like you've already grown up you've you've reached the point where you exist in and by yourself mm -hmm. when you're at that point it's about what you want to do with yourself yeah. It's about the person you you want to you want to be, the person you want to look like. If if you still have that as an adult, I think that it means you're you're not complete yet. Like you're you're still missing something. If you're still trying to be someone else, that means that you're not you're not good yet. Like you're you're mm -hmm. still missing something in your construction. Mm -hmm. And when instead you're like, okay, I like this is what I want to do. This is the goal I want to have. This is so when it becomes. I want to have instead of I want to be, that means you've figured something out. Ah, uh, interesting. I think that's the point where you've got like where you've gotten, right? That's the point where you're like, 
okay, it's not whom I want to be, it's what I want to do, it's what I want to have. You want okay. to have meaningful connections with people, which is, of course, something that we search because we're social people. Like, the human race is social. Yeah. Uh, you social want problem solvers and tool users. Exactly. You want to have something you can be proud of because it means that you have, you know, done something from yourself, by yourself, to reach that point. So it's something you can be proud of. It's something you can be proud to show to others. It's not something that you have bought. It's not something you have acquired. It's something you have achieved. So it's something that you, that you necessarily take pride in because you did it. Mm-hmm. And, and all of that is something that you only get when you're an adult. And uh, when you're an adult, like the, the fact that you, that you still have something that you want to show off is, is like a remnant of, like in, in my understanding at least, a remnant of when you're a child and you go up to mom and dad and you're like, hey, mom and dad, I made this or I got this good grade or something. Mm-hmm. Like the, you, want, you want to feel the, the praise or the, the positive view from someone. Yeah, the validation. Yeah. Validation, yeah, as you're doing it. And then when you're an adult, it's more like, I want to I wanna validate myself a little. You know, I want to do something yeah. I can do. I want to do something that, that I enjoy and that I can also look back at and be like, rate it well right there. Solid. You know, like, mm-hmm. I, can, I can be happy with myself. That's, mm-hmm. that's just what growing up does to people. Yeah. Yeah. I think one way to summarize what you said, at least a part of it would be, might be that you you care less about impressing others and more about impressing yourself. And when you're young, impressing yourself isn't worth much because you don't know much. But when you're an adult, when you've been, when you've passed through the lens of reality and shared experience, you've gone to school, you've you've done work, you've had relationships, you've dealt with family things, things that that children don't deal with, then you become a more competent consumer of your own experiences in a way you become more able to understand and find validation in what you do i mean i experience it all the time whenever i look back at my work um it's interesting um when i produce a podcast like this i I, i'll always go back and listen to it afterwards and write give myself notes for next time and i i'm not i'm never i never accurately predict what my reaction to my rewatch will be i always get it wrong when i rewatch it i always i'm always surprised by what i did and what i liked and disliked about it um it's a fascinating process i hope you can share some of that with me after you rewatch what we have done (laughs) tell me what what you felt were your highlights in in it what what you took away from it i mean it is also very interesting for me because you know when you're when you're expressing yourself in someone else's platform it's mm-hmm. it's always uh, an interesting experience. So um, I very much like to have your return from all of that. that would be sure, great. absolutely. Um, no reason we can't stay in touch and have an ongoing dialogue. In fact, that's one of my favorite things to do. That's great. Um, so I feel like we've really gone into the weeds on some very cool ideas, <laughs> and I'm feeling the need to get back to something more concrete. Um, but I wonder if before we do that, if I could a- ask you if you'd be okay with a, a quick uh, five-minute pause. Definitely. I mean, I'll, I'll use that myself, the okay. technical break. Sounds good. Sure. We'll be back in five minutes. Thanks, Sam. Perfect.
Hey, welcome back, everyone. I'm back. My, I'm Deeg. I'm back here with Sam Ajiste. And we're talking about Guild Wars 2 games, philosophy, and life, as you do. We just had a really fun tangent talking about um, that stemmed, I think, from a conversation about gambling and gambling games specifically. Um, I wonder if I could come back to something that you said while you were laying the foundation for your point of view when you made that, that video about Mountgate back in 2017. Yeah. You said that you had a fundamental disagreement with something about the way ArenaNet um, and Guild Wars 2 business, business works. I wonder if I could ask you to elaborate on what that is. See, the, the, way, the way I was disagreeing with ArenaNet is I was voicing the same concerns as the community, which was, all right, guys, you've, you've given us some content with the expansion pack that we have paid for. You've also given us the promise of future content, which is something I can you know, agree with. Mm -hmm. But uh, we need to see something tangible within a correct time frame, which is something that our internet still to this day has a lot of issues you know, responding with. Or responding to. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the main issue that I had is, okay, Path of Fire has released. We're going to have a raid wing. We have four new maps. We have a story. Mm -hmm. But uh, I'd like to have my raid wing, like, now. <laughs> Similarly, I was like, I would pretty much like to, to have more fractals now. Like, we, we didn't even get a, a Path of Fire themed fractal yet. I was like, these maps are, are pretty cool. There are some meta events that I don't exactly you know, want to partake in because I, I felt that the, the, the map meta events in Heart of Thorns were much more interesting than bounties. And I was like, mm. where, where are my instance content at? Where, where is the stuff that I'm going to do with my friends? Because an MMO experience is you get tossed in a world, you play with the people that are around you, but mm -hmm. it's also an occasion where you can just you know, play with the squad play with, with the mates, the homies, however people call them, play with the people you actually enjoy spending your evening with. That's mm -hmm. that's something that has followed me since the start of Guild Wars 2 to almost the end of my of my you know career as a regular content creator on Guild Wars 2. It was playing with the friends regularly. Yeah. Like I would get on the game to play with the friends. I wouldn't yeah. get on the game to play the game. It's also something that Rocket said, I think, you know, the, the feeling of playing with the friends. So can can get back to that. Yeah. But uh, but I was like that that was something I was actually not okay with from Ernan. I was like, okay, I paid, I get the content, I get a promise of content that I'm more interested in, and I would like to see the content that I supposedly paid for in advance, instead of seeing you getting more money first. Mm. Like, just put the money I gave you to the use that it was meant for. Mm -hmm. And that is that is why I was feeling wrong about it. I was like, this. I just want my content, and that's why I voiced the same concerns as what the people were voicing, which was, is it is it really fine to not have the content yet, and have them say, yeah, okay, we we're gonna need the money to make content. Like I felt like there was some mismanagement. Maybe, um, and that, that's also something that I said. Maybe, uh, like. Uh, a disagreement between the views of management 
and the views of the of the producers of the game of the of the people trying to take the game in a certain direction mm-hmm. I, I felt like there was a clash somewhere at in it I, I never quite could put the finger on it because even 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 though I got partnered uh, as Pathfinder released I I quite couldn't find out what was going on there I was just like okay I don't I don't get what's happening but I think that somewhere there are people who are not agreeing with each other and that is why we see a situation like this where there is no communication just issues mm-hmm. which is a very arenanetti way to do things however like the lack of communication is a staple mm. yeah yeah that's a tough one man i i totally understand why that would make you and anyone upset um one of the one of the things that i used to spray all over reddit when i was really trying to make my points there which i don't do anymore was like yeah well that's a whole other conversation and i i agree with the headline though um is that you can make almost anything okay with the right kind of communication. Almost anything. Yeah. And I know that it's hard to do. But that makes it that much more worth doing. Like, I work in a, a corporate structure myself. I do professional services building software. And, man, there are times where I have felt like I was in a position to to make things easier on myself or my team or my company by just not saying everything. And that's kind of normal when you're trying to speak on behalf of something as huge as a corporation. Um, but it's very hard to do that. It's very hard to have accountability, very hard for any individual person representing something that big to take responsibility for the entire problem or whatever it is. Um, I think we've I, seen from Arena Net. Sorry, go ahead. No, I think I, I think I see the the point of view that you're that you're trying to be to bring up, and I I'll, I'll just just go on for now, and I'll react after. Okay. Sorry. I also wanted to pull in something you said earlier about how you have had a tendency in the past, and maybe currently too. I don't know, to have to take a relatively apologistic stance towards Arena Net and their need to monetize, their need to. Uh, you know, um, treat the game like a business because it is. And it is. I think it's one of the really fascinating things about games is that they're an art form and they're an interactive art form and business. Totally unique. I, I, I feel like we're on the bleeding edge of some of these kinds of issues, which is very fun. But um, I guess the point I want to make is that we have seen expectations be set, altered, missed, forgotten about over and over again, regardless of the intentions and whatever the internal machinations that we don't see. And it paints a picture that is kind of like a Rorschach. You're familiar with the idea of a Rorschach? I do. Okay, yeah. For those who don't know, it's like an impressionistic like ink blob on paper and you look at it and you say like kind of like you're staring at a cloud oh i see a dog i see a a wheel and the idea of a rorschach is it says more about the person than about the ink blot what you see 
And when you look at a sufficiently complicated situation, I think the natural thing to do is to project your experience on it. Um, and so everyone sees something different. And one of the main differentiators, I think, of what people see is what they love about the game. If you love raids and you see loot boxes coming out and being controversial and you haven't seen a raid in a year, then yeah, like your story is clear. Like the, I'm, I'm, ha I'm being let down, but I'm being asked to step up in my contribution back to the game, which feels like it's morally unjust. Definitely. And the complicated thing about all of that is that gamers have the luxury of having their feelings and issues with the game all be in the public. Because we're just people who are consuming a game. Like, the worst thing you can do is publish an unpopular opinion as a, as a gamer, and it, it doesn't really affect you that much to be wrong on the internet. But the stakes are very different if you're communicating on behalf of a studio or a publisher. Um, and I recognize that. I think you recognize that. And a lot of people recognize that. And so we see things go, seemingly go wrong. And we understand that there are things about what's going wrong that we don't understand. And they probably are reasonable. Probably the people who are making the game are themselves under shifting expectations. Probably they're under an adverse circumstance that then gets passed down to us. What's the responsibility of someone who's just a cog in the wheel to throw themselves on the machine? You know? Yeah. Um, it's a hard thing to ask anyone to do. You know, um, I had the opportunity to talk to Bobby Stein about a month ago, um, the Associate Narrative Director at ArenaNet. And the really cool sense I got from him is that at least for the parts of the business that he touches, there's a very like artistic collective kind of approach towards the actual endeavor of game development. Like that it should not just be something that lifts up the gamers who consume it, but it should lift up the people who are making it too. And that sense of respect being returned back to people working on the game, no forced crunch, you know. You, we don't hear stories about arena crunching. Yeah. And maybe if they were crunching, we would have raids. Would that be better? No. Because what matters is having something that is polished, enjoyable, of high quality, rather than mm -hmm. something that is rushed and feels like leaves a bad aftertaste. Uh, I'll have I have two things to say to everything that you've said so far, and the first thing that I'm going to say is the shortest. If you look at what was originally planned for years before they released the game, it was really good. I don't know how early you got into it, but I think you got in it early, early 2015, before. just before Heart of Thorns. Mm, then you you probably felt it just a bit. The whole Scarlet Briar story, mm -hmm. I loved that. A lot of mm. people say she was a bad villain, that the story was bad, etc. I loved it. The mm. whole Scarlet Briar story actually felt great. We had a villain that had reasons for reactions, that was already seeing the future where we were living in the moment of the game. They really managed to give us that feeling. Mm -hmm. like, we're, like we were the pawns in the game, 
and Scarlet was just the queen that was looking uh, at the forces of the enemy. She was yeah. already a few steps ahead of us, and that, that really felt great. And yeah, that to me was art. You know, it was the story within it. It was the direction where we were taken, and whomever was working all of that story, all of that build-up, on the cinematic effects, on, on bringing up the encounters and everything, I loved it. The, the whole retake Lion's Archer back from the enemy, that yeah. was to me one of the culminating points of the game. That was so good. They, they wiped a city, they made a huge event take place in it, and, and then we had to somehow almost save the world. It... Th- that combination of the story was like 20 times better than Killing Zaitan. And Killing Zaitan is supposed to be something big. Like, I mean, we're killing one of the six dragons. Yeah. One of the six major enemies. One of the, one of the god killers. Sorry for the spoilers, but I guess, I guess that's okay. It's Zaitan. Give me a break. And, um, dra- dragons, dragons eat gods, lad. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> they, they like it. Tastes good. Lots of magic. Right? Who, can, who can blame them, right? Yeah, I love no. my spaghetti as well. Um, just... This felt great. Like it was, a, it was a great story and a great narrative experience. And, and the build-up to it was so great. Flame and Frost, legions fighting against each other. Her, you know, making making her later friends. You know, already pushing her factions here and there. We were fighting enemies. We had no idea she was behind them. It was mm-hmm. so good. And so, so that's one thing. When you say that the the story, the art, etc., should elevate the people behind it. That's where I felt such deep respect for the people behind the story. Because the story mm-hmm. was crazy, crazy good. No matter what people say, I loved it. And I will stand by these words forever. It was also, crazy. blowing up the, the capital city of the game is like a really, it's a, it's it's, a big it's, balls move. It's such, yeah, it's such a hot take. Like, yeah. and people, there are still people who are complaining about old Lion's Arch. I liked it. I have old videos of it. I liked it. But, but like, kinda, this was... I'm kind of sad I never got to experience it. Because I, I, I started it's after that arc, really- and... Oh yeah. When I was getting back in, it was the bombed out lines arch that I started in. I was like, "What is with this place?" And then I had to go back and figure out what happened. Yeah, that that it's a shame that we can't replay through all of that for real. Like they still have the assets somewhere and everything. They could they could add it as like a fractal or an area you can go back to or something. They they could do so. They've done some parts, right? Like I know, like uh, one of the new fractals is based on some of that content. Uh, Actually, a couple of them. Yeah, which was which was a most welcome take because the encounters were actually good, for yeah. sure. It was actually good. So that was the first thing I wanted to say on the on the matter of elevating a game. And the other thing that I wanted to say is on the way we we consume video games, and that is the that is like the way games are being made right now. That uh, that changed also the way we consume them. Okay. I'm gonna go back a long time ago. The first video game that I saw played before my eyes wasn't one that I was playing myself. When I was, when I was about four years old, back in 1998, my dad was all crazy about Tomb Raider 2. He would stay up at night, wake up early in the morning to go complete Tomb Raider 2, get all the trophies, all the golden ones, the hidden. He was, dad was a gamer, you know, I can say it, dad was a gamer. He still, he still. Yeah, Apple didn't he's fall really far from the tree, huh? Yeah, I mean, he, he's really bad at, at FPS games nowadays. So <laughs> I actually don't don't play with him when he asks me to. So I don't have to carry it. it feels you bad. don't want to be embarrassed, no, Dad. Stop watching. 
<laughs> I'm sorry, Dad. I mean, very tough chances he's going to find this, but I'm sorry, Dad. I'm sorry. <laughs> he, he knows it. He knows it. We tried playing zombie mode together. It, it didn't quite work out. But, uh, but yeah. He's got to get good. This, this, yeah, like, this, this aside, a game back then was shipped as a finished product. Mm-hmm. There weren't DLCs. There weren't updates. You took it, you played it, everything in it was already in there. Mm-hmm. You liked it or you didn't like it. There was, there was no reason to go and, and cry out. Because the game was already there. It wasn't going to change. That's it. It's done. Mm-hmm. It's made. Etc. Nowadays, we are treating studios the same way we would treat a content creator. We want accountability from them. We, we go and consume the content that the video game is the same way we would consume the content from a content creator. When it doesn't fit what we want it to be, we say it. When it feels like it's, it's being like, and we say the same of studios as content creators, so it's very funny on that end, when we call them sellouts, mm. like they add something to, to make people purchase the same way someone is going to make a video with a huge sponsor to get, to get a cash grab. Yeah. We, we shun them for doing so. Like we, we look at it as if it's the wrong thing to do because that's not the, the human thing to do, like the, the, the community, you know, indie thing to do. And it's, it's, it's like, I think it's our way of consuming the content that's made it the way it is, or maybe it was the other way around. I don't know what came first, the chicken, the egg, as you said at the start mm-hmm. of this mm-hmm. podcast. It's, um, it's just, content right now is, is meant, I mean, video games right now are made in the same way that content creator would make their content. It's like, you get a promise of something that is going to come. Uh, it does come at intervals, be them regular or not. Mm-hmm. You're going to consume it, voice your opinion, in the hopes that it's going to impact the next delivery of content. Mm-hmm. And then at some point, you're going to vote with your wallet. Yeah. Same way you would by saying, yeah, I'm subscribed. Yeah. And that's, I think that's the wrong way to go about things. Because at, at the end of the day, we need to remember that the video game is, is a piece of art. There is an artistic direction behind it. There is a place that wants to take us. There is a story that is unraveling. Mm-hmm. There is a lot that goes behind it. And in fine, the way it is being delivered, the way it is being priced, all of that, is the fact of the financial management team. And that's it. So like the, the creators behind it, you know, we, we need to take them for who they are, artists. I say mm-hmm. that with respect. I respect artists mm-hmm. a lot. And we, we, should, we should probably treat a video game the same way we would treat a movie, you know. You get out of it and you're like, I liked it. Or you're like, okay, a little bit of an aftertaste, but that was a good one. I can't wait to see the next one, etc. You know, it's just, it's just the, the way we consume video games has kind of shifted the wrong way. But, you know, that's just one of my takes. I don't know if you, if you would agree with that. I'm deciding what I think. Okay. No, it's definitely an interesting perspective. Yeah, I think one of the tricks is the feedback cycle, right? Because mm-hmm. if you look at a game like Tomb Raider 2, how long, how, how, what was the feedback cycle between Tomb Raider 2 and Tomb Raider 3? How did they decide to change what they changed? It's almost I like... Not, I don't even think there was a feedback cycle. The, yeah. That's, that's like, the like, I think there wasn't feedback like sales like word of mouth refunds maybe were the way you would get some feedback through refunds i guess refunds were pl- pretty valid yeah uh, 
but yeah, like it seems like the feedback would mostly come from like sorry let me talk no, about you. I was gonna say, maybe a few forums or like you know like internet chatting i think irc was a thing like then. game game facts maybe <laughs> Yeah, I mean, not. game has been, has been there for a very long time. I, I yeah. still use it to this day. Eh? No, no shunning my boy GameFAX. I, <laughs> I still, I still use it regularly for some old RPGs. Uh yeah. It, there's some knowledge there that is nowhere else. Um, God bless it. Um, yeah, like, but just... yeah. So, I guess I see that change in communication and feedback as being transformational. Definitely. Um, and. The idea of being able to create something without scrutiny, I think it's something you get to do like once. Mm-hmm. Um, like your first time out. Um, you, 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 you get a chance to make the thing that is your true artistic vision. Then after that, as social problem solvers, like we intrinsically, I think, cannot help but listen to feedback and incorporate it. And I think it's to our it's to our detriment to to ignore feedback and it's very hard to separate qualified good feedback from bad and to see the truth in what someone says even if the way they say it is disrespectful or even if nine out of ten things they say are wrong to focus on the one thing that say oh i should listen to this this is important i must agree with you like not not listening to feedback is taken as doubling down on a mistake. Right. That is that is huge, right? Because that, that is the way it is perceived by people. It's like you make something, people give you feedback, good or bad, you take it, and then you're going to, well, first step, you're supposed to communicate about it, be like, okay, we're taking in the feedbacks. This is what we understood. You agree mm-hmm. with that? You know, like the, the second check, mm-hmm. important. Then you're going to implement stuff. If you, if you get feedback and implement the wrong thing, then that means you know nothing. Mm-hmm. That means you're, you're yeah. voluntarily deciding to trust in another factor than the satisfaction mm-hmm. of your consumer base. And there's an assumption. Rightfully so, we feel wronged. You know? mm-hmm. Rightfully so, we feel wrong. We're going to be like, okay, you, you asked us what we thought. We told you, you're supposed to do that. You know that if you do that, you keep our support and you're deciding not to do that. So either we're not big enough to influence you, like there is another bigger stake, understandable. We get back to the mountain gate, decisions, management, all of that with that. Or, you know, you, you're just going in with your direction and you're like, it better be the proper direction. Like the, the, the delivery better be great. If you're, if you're going to keep going one way and everyone told, tells you that's maybe not the right way, the end has to be perfect. You better be you right. Better, yeah, you, you you better be right at the end at some point. <laughs> so, so yeah, that's uh... right. Yeah, that's an interesting one. Because um, yeah, even if you, regardless of whatever you decide to do, when you get feedback, people will assume that you're aware of it. Your audience will assume that you kind of understood their feedback and ingested it in some way. Even if you just sit there and, and feel what, however you feel about something, there's an assumption that, oh, well, someone else will speak up and say this thing. Um, there's such a high expectation of communication and accountability for that communication that's come out of this new technology that uh, no one knows how to deal with it. Um, 
and we have these minds that are built to like not built um emerged at, to meet a need of keeping track of you know tens of human connections not hundreds or thousands um it's we're in like a race right now to try to figure out if we can supplement our native capabilities with the proper technology to actually meet these needs um we farm out trust assessment you know verified on twitter I, do i trust this person are they verified yes or no rather than like checking in with your family and with your friends to see if this person who just entered the tribe is legit you trust twitter or um how else do we assess trust you know um we ban you, people from games if they cheat sorry go ahead i was gonna say we we assess trust based on on following yes there's a way how many followers it. it's like is that person listened to within their own community first step mm-hmm. and second step is that person listened to outside of their community mm-hmm. if they check both of these marks i'll listen to them you will listen to them everyone will listen to them because mm-hmm. what they say has been validated by the followers and outside of them mm-hmm. and that is this is actually a huge thing and it's I wouldn't know if it's good or bad. I wouldn't, I wouldn't take like a hot yeah, take on it. It's just, I think that there's perspectives on both sides, but I think you said it dead on. Okay. So yeah, well, Once again, uh, another like, interesting tangent we found. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really sorry. I have, I have the art of going on tangents and you, you need to rein me back in. Yes. So. Well, let's attempt to do that here. Um, great, a, a really great exploration, all emerging from discussion about loot boxes, which I guess is no surprise. That's always such a fun topic. Um, but let's get back to talking about, um, let's see, at the start of the podcast, you said that you have your passion, you do your content for, and you have like your service almost like your service for the community. To help promote the things that you think um, need more promotion, that deserve more attention. Um, mm. While I still, while I still have plenty of caffeine flowing through my mind, maybe I can ask you to tell me about the some of these economic concerns and questions about the game economy. Um, I have, honestly, I've never engaged in the economy outside of making a couple of spreadsheets to do mystic forge conversions um and i wonder if i could just run a few things by you sure okay start with some broader topics um actually maybe i should just start simple maybe that would be better uh anything you want at me i'll give you the, the best answer i can excellent um, hmm. Okay, here's if the a question. Good one. Is this hard to formulate? I'm going to be stuck, yeah? Well, I just want to ask you the best question, you know? Um, okay, here's one. Uh, so, I know that one of the weird things that goes on in the Guild Wars economy, a lot of the interactions are formed by 
this permeability between, and we, we referenced this earlier, between gems and gold. Yeah. Um, I think that there, it's a pretty interesting choice for a game to make first to have a player economy at all. Um, I was listening to a conversation by Kevin Jordan, one of the original designers of World of Warcraft, and there was a time where there was not going to be a player economy. And someone insisted, no, we have to have a player economy. We need an auction house. Um, and Guild Wars, of course, made that choice at some point, too, to have a player economy. It's different in many ways than World of Warcraft. And one of the many ways that it set itself aside as being more friendly than other games with cash shops is, of course, not selling power. Um, it's, it's based on cosmetics and convenience. And also allowing you to buy premium currency with currency earned in game and allowing as allowing players to grind out those rewards. I wonder if you could give me your take on whether this system is good for the game, bad for the game, or any other any interesting thoughts about that. All right. Well, in uh, in that matter, we have two things to take into account. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm going to give you an answer purely from a financial management POV at the studio. So I hope that will, it will answer your question. Okay. The two things that you will take into account are revenue in one hand and metrics in the other. Because both of these are going to have a finite impact on funding you will receive and, uh, let's say, attention from investors which is also something you want to get. Mm-hmm. In terms of revenue, uh, having that duality of the, of the gem system means that you will get people who are, who are going to buy because they will want to be able to have gold the easy way. We mentioned that earlier. Flip burgers instead of flipping the trading post if you're buying Yes. yes. So, so let's, let's put that aside for now, the revenue part. And then we get to the metrics part. If you know that your content will be delivered in, in a time frame that's going to vary from two weeks at release to three months and a half nowadays. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you know that this is going to be a thing, then what you're going to be interested in is going to be player retention, player like con- concurrent connection metric. And let's say, overall interest in your game, like box sales that, that can like stem from that. And um, the, the way metrics play into that is that if you tell your investors or shareholders that you've got millions of people playing the game, they will feel good about it. Mm-hmm. And they, will, they will want to keep putting money in that. If, you, if you're able to say, okay, we've, we've made a game where you can just play to get the best looking things. You don't have to put money in it. Mm-hmm. That that's such a good marketing move. That's great. You know, people like that. Yeah. This is exactly why, in my mind, they went for that direction, because it serves the general purpose of having a good image, generating sales, getting good word of mouth at, getting good metrics, ensuring revenue from the people that are not going to play as hard as the others. You know, yeah. you get so many good things from having that set up from the get-go. Mm-hmm. If you do have it, you're creating uh, a situation where, where that's going to happen. Okay. Does, does that answer your question or is it a little bit too far? Yeah, no, I, I think I get it. What you're saying is that, let me just repeat it back to you and make sure you can tell me if I got it. 
um, that um, it's beneficial to have a setup uh, to your game on the business side um, that encourages lots of people to be playing, whatever that method is, because having a lot of people playing re reflects positively and has has um, has um, follow-on effects that reflect well on investors and people who are interested in the game um, on the financial on the financial decision-making side, let's say. So free-to-play or buy-to-play um, is a model that lets the most people in to play your game. And even if they're not participating in the gem store economy in any way, they're a potential buyer because they're already they're already sunk into your product in some way. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, I mean that is that is very correct. And I think that's the reason why we're we're seeing the game being the way it is. How so? I mean like I, I meant the way the economy was built. Like I was, you know, just going back to what to what we were saying earlier. Like the the reason why the game is made in a way where you have, let's say, long term goals, you can grind for stuff where they are, where they add new, not new content you're gonna grind, but new content you're gonna grind for. You know, that's the way it works. That's how they're, you know, feeding the player base. You why would you need? to give people a new raid, if you can give them five new cosmetics that take much less time to develop, and they're going to grind the same amount of time for that. And also, what already exists, they're going to grind it. And because of the gold gem okay. standard, you can do almost any content you want to grind towards that reward. Exactly, and that, that is also a great thing. Like, and it is, it is, I think, one of the sense of freedom that they wanted to put in Gear Wars 2. You know, when they released Gear Wars 2, there was a manifesto Mm -hmm. That was used as, a, let's say, as a as a target for discontent a little bit later on. But mm -hmm. when there is Gears Two, I don't remember the whole manifesto by heart. But there were a lot of things like you can you can play any side of the game you want and achieve the same things. You can play any class you want. There won't be a holy trinity. You won't be stuck in a role. You can you can achieve whatever you want, doing whatever you want. That was basically yeah. the manifesto. Big promises and, of freedom. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and. They followed up on that. Like you can't, yeah. you can't attack them on anything of that. It, it works, one hundred percent. And so I, and so I say, yeah, they've uh, they've made something that matches the original side they had for it, and to this day, they're not deviating that hard away from it. Mm -hmm. Like it, it does still check out. Okay, so it sounds like you think that the the whole setup with. Uh, the gem store and there being gold to gems and gems to gold and all that stuff is mainly a good thing for the game. I do. Okay. Do you think there are any parts of that that system that have negative consequences? Like one of the things I just heard you say is that it's frustrating to feel like rather than getting a raid, we're getting five new outfits in the gem store. That sounds like a yeah. negative thing. It, it just creates an environment in which it is too easy. And, and basically the, the easy solution for it is just to, to make cosmetics instead of making content. Mm -hmm. Even though you could argue that cosmetics are content. In a game named Fashion Wars 2, would kind of check out, wouldn't it? 
it's just uh it's just i personally uh, think that this is one of the places where where like having such a system can go very wrong because the moment you put something in the gym store it's just it's going to be content it's going to be people something i mean something people would grind for mm-hmm. And that can, that can lead to being lazy about content. And mm. like, it's been a while since the last fractal. It's been an even longer time since the last raid. Uh, strike missions were even dropped. DRMs are such a joke that I'm still laughing when I think about them. Uh, huh. Yeah, like, I mean, the content right now is lazy. 100%. Uh. Like, the story is good. Like, I mean, it's, it's okay. Just DRMs. It should have been at least a strike mission. Let me remind me to ask you about DRMs in a, in a few. Before we get there, though, um, sure. I um, have been listening to a series of lectures by um, a woman named Julia Galef about something she calls motivated reasoning, and mm-hmm. um, basically, it's it's the idea of examining an idea from a point of view of defense or attack to say here's a new idea. Do I need to defend this idea or do I need to attack it? And you can think about like, you know, the, the major polarizing issues going on in, in Western culture today. Like, am I conservative or am I liberal? Am I for this or am I for that? And, you know, what am I about? Um, and what she espouses is this idea of um, what she calls uh, not a soldier mindset, but a scout mindset, where instead of trying to understand how an idea fits into your existing ethos, you focus on whether an idea has truth in it. And you try to use the the new idea to update your internal model. And one of the major things that I came away from that talk about is her saying that for many people, the question of being able to to use this scout mindset rather than the soldier mindset isn't based on the person themselves, but based on their incentives. And that people will do and say things that are not truthful or not accurate if it's their incentive to do so. Like, let's think about an example. Let's say you're a salesperson and you make commission based on sales. And you're engaging with a potential client. And let's say you're an honest salesperson, okay? And even though you you were dealing with with a client who doesn't know the product like you do, who doesn't know how it gets used like you do? You're the expert, you know. But you're also a conscientious salesperson and you're not going to sell this client something that they don't really need, even though they think they want it. You're going to be like, you know what? I think this isn't actually a good thing for you and I don't want to take advantage of you. Maybe you do that. But this is the system you're in. And even if you take that stance, eight out of the other 10 people on your team might not because there's a problem with the incentive. And that people will do the thing they're incentivized to do. And I think about what you just said about uh, that, applying that idea to what you just said. Um, If we have a, if it's acceptable to add content to the game via gem store unlocks, what are we, what is arena as a developer incentivized to do? Um, It's been really interesting for me to kind of, and I have, I've been playing through the new story content, but I've not really been engaging with any of the unlocks or achievements. I don't really like achievements in the first place, personally. I'm with you on that. Oh, someone else. You and me against everyone else, it feels like. <laughs> um, achievements are tiring. I, I don't need someone to tell me what's an achievement. 
Yeah. I make uh, achievements. Hell yeah, man. Me too. Uh, but there's, they, they put in these new weapon skins and the new, the new content that came alongside the dragon response missions that have a huge grind attached to them. They're a huge amount of effort to do. And like, so why would they do that? Oh, they want people to be playing the game. Well, why do they want people to do that? Oh, because they've just had a sudden shift away from this living world model of content to an opportunity which is exactly the way I heard Bobby Stein put it on a guild chat. He says, we, we got a chance to work on an expansion. Of course we're going to jump at that. It was a change. It was a surprise, a pleasant surprise. But I meant sacrificing the quality of content. And they learned from Heart of Thorns that they cannot have a nine-month content drought leading up to an expansion yeah. launch. It's just murder on the existing playing player base. So they need something, and they need to keep people busy. And so we have these, um, these story missions that are that incentivized you're incentivized to want to repeat in several ways that have these these big grinds associated with them and I'll, i mean to, to their credit a lot of different weapon skins like there's a lot um but it all rolls back to a question of incentives so they're incentivized to do x because they know that they'll create the create the right incentives for their players to do to do what they want which is to play the game something you were just saying is very valuable as a potential investor. So what's the end of the line of the, of the incentive chain? And where I often come, come in on these conversations is that the end of the line is the financial money people. Yeah. And when well, we see a, a decision being made by a developer to do something in a game, we can't just look at the person who designed the system to be like, they screwed this up or they got this right. We have to look at the chain of accountability and incentives which is confusing as a gamer because game studios, and I'm not talking about arena, I'm talking about as an industry, yeah. have done a bad job of explaining to us how games are made. I just watched this really great piece by, um, sorry, I'm drawing in 15,000 things. This is my problem. Um, no problem. I'm following. By, crap, I cannot remember the YouTube creator. I'll try to link it in the description of this when it goes up live later. But he talked about how a big part of the reason why why gamers gamers experience uh, gamers take on games is so bad is because game studios hide how games are made from people they want you to believe that it's produced by magic you know uh through passion i would say through passion more than magic they yeah. want people to believe that that they are happy people doing meetings between the artists and, and the designers every day, working on what they want to put in the game to make people happy and, uh, and for you to enjoy it at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. like, it's a very idyllic way of putting it, and that's, that's where it is very wrong as well. Because at the end of the day, if you want, if you want to have funding to make a game, then you, you need to make a promise that your game is going to sell. A promise that your game is going to sell we mean that investors, since they're rather chilly people, are going to ask you, "What are you? What are you going to monetize with it? You're just going to sell your game, or you're going to put extra, extra little bits in there for us?" Yeah. Uh, and that's that's just the way it goes. Like you, you want to start a project, you need funding. And there were, like, the, we've seen we've seen the rise of the extreme opposite of that lately. I'm, I'm going to make a tangent that I apologize in advance for. Don't go for it, brother. Kickstarters. Mm. Kickstarters are what game studios 
pretend to be. Mm. And there is there is one Kickstarter, the only Kickstarter for a video game, actually probably the only Kickstarter as a whole I've participated into, was the Kickstarter for a game called Bloodstained Ritual of the Night. Maybe you okay. don't know it. I That's guess annoying. you don't know. Okay. The the studio, like the studio behind it, is called Five Hundred and One Games. That's not going to tell you much either. Um, Koji Garashi, maybe that name rings a bell. Probably not. Sorry, that's still going to be all right. If I say Konami as yeah. a video game studio, that rings a bell to you. Okay, yeah, yeah. One of the big IPs of Konami, top of top of your head, uh, Metal Gear. I'm going to give you a, a hint: role-playing game. Uh, you're gonna leave me. I I haven't okay. played console games in the last twenty years for the most part. Okay, okay. Hear me out. I'm I'm gonna take you just a little bit further. Oh okay. man. Okay. RPG exploration mechanics enigmas Konami? from Konami. It it even became a genre. Like the name became Wait, a genre. Did Konami make Final Fantasy? No, 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 no. That's Square Enix. Uh, I thought Rocker had pounded that into you. <laughs> uh, I knew it was wrong, but I'm guessing. Okay. I'm fishing. Like, if I say as a genre, Metroidvania. Yeah, yeah. Castlevania. That's okay. a Konami IP. Yeah. Yes. It's a huge series of games that has spanned uh, 30 years. I've heard it of this is, Kickstarter. It yeah. This Kickstarter brought in within the, like they asked for two millions they ended with over five million mm-hmm. and every bit of the promise that they made they delivered on it and in mm-hmm. each step of the release of the game like they were late of over a year on the release mm. and nobody bitched about it sorry for the word sorry for youtube demonetization you That's can fine. cut that one i'm fine nobody nobody went crazy about it because at every step you know every month they made a point they were like okay this is what we're working on. This is what you're developing. Here are some new assets. Here's the new graphics we worked on. This is going to be a new environment. Here, we've made new weapons. Ah, communication. They, they were, they were, they, but they were passionate about what they were making. Like the, the studio director, uh, so, so, like okay. Kuji, he, he just wrote to people. Like he, he actually wrote the letters themselves, himself and, and signed them himself. He was like, okay, I've talked to the people. This is what we worked on. This is what we've made. This is where we're at right now. This is where we're going to go. And every step of the way, they just explained more of the stuff they were doing. And the thing that was very enjoyable is that there were passionate people mm-hmm. who were being used as a cash grab at Konami as to just rehash the same Castlevania game over and over. They're like, that's not the direction we want to go with. So they all left together, built a studio together, made a Kickstarter, got millions, and made a beautiful game. Hey which is the spirit child of the whole Castlevania franchise. And like the, there is like the, the whole, the, the original idyllic way of describing video game producing work, be it artist, designer, programmer, whatever, all of that job. The, the very idyllic way of presenting it isn't within studios that are funded by shareholders and stuff like that, is within Kickstarters. That's, that's my stance on it. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. like you, you won't see that kind of of idyllic, almost dreamlike uh, creation process in a big studio. Do you think that Kickstarters are like a way of the future with crowdfunding? 
I, yeah, you think I that, believe so. Yeah. Okay. We've seen it work, um, especially for games that have smaller budgets. I mean, five million bucks is is pretty great for a game like that. But I'll be honest, you're not going to make Red Dead Redemption three with five million bucks. Yeah. You're not even going to make Guild Wars two, Guild Wars three with five million bucks. Like, there's a there's a difference in scale there too, isn't there? Definitely so. Although, like, I mean, Bloodstained when it released was was like, it's pretty meaty in content you know i believe it but it's but a like, it's a I game whose scope is 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 achievable with a more modest budget like Definitely. you don't you don't need to have a thousand people working on that game like it's not a call of duty it's not a world of warcraft it's not one of these kinds of games that these studios have gotten so big in order to be able to make yeah i agree um, with you and again, that can go back to like the the whole the, the the capitalist incentives in our culture about having to grow, always grow, grow, grow. I'm not yeah. gonna, I'm not competent to have that conversation. But um, yeah, I mean, I get I get you, and you're you're on the right track with what you're saying. It's um, okay. It's it's not even a decision to keep growing. It's just like unstoppable greed. Mm. That is that is leading to that, and this gives us a very nice parallel to get back okay. to the Wars 2 economy, because there was another thing I wanted to say. I'm going to use something you mentioned earlier to get back to the topic. Beautiful. You mentioned the content joints between Heart of Thor, like between like discarded stuff and Heart of Thor. Yeah. This content drop was the one time where we saw the biggest inflation in Wars 2. Hmm. That was that was a very interesting period. That was the period where you were playing. Right? Yeah, where you, when I was just getting started. All right, then let me let me ask you the first question. Mm-hmm. Back then, how much was a legendary? Let's say the Bifrost. They were always outside of my range. I don't remember looking. I remember okay. it being like hard question then. A couple thousand gold, maybe. Like I honestly never really looked. All right. Let me let me just tell Educate you me. that back then, the Bifrost as a weapon. Mm. I mean, I don't know if it's Bifrost or Bifrost. I'm going to use both. One of I think it's Bifrost. Mm. Okay. Well, but Bifrost. Let let Bifrosts be Bifrosts. Um, <laughs> that was bad. I'm sorry. I'm bad at puns. Forgiven. Um, it was over three thousand gold. Okay. Today you can get one for two point two, two point three through by orders. Mm-hmm. Back then, the the buy order was over three thousand gold. Mm-hmm. The precursor itself was one point five thousand. For okay. one point five thousand today, you get a cheap legendary. Yeah, for one point five thousand, you can easily make a legendary of your own, all costs included. You make that for one point five k. The precursor, the matters, everything. So, what happened to cause that inflation? Well, that was actually a, a very, very interesting case is that we were talking about content. The, the lack of content to grind means that you start grinding for the content. People wanted legendaries, so they started grinding to get it. And as you grind and grind and grind, you got gold to buy stuff. But you have no expenditure for that gold apart from uh... buying legendaries. Then, then at some point, everything is, is just going to become more expensive for that higher end stuff. 
because you're you're bringing more and more gold into the economy because people are still playing the game. They're excited for Heart of Thorns, but they have nothing new to spend the money on. Only the same old gold sinks. So they're going to be like, okay, I'm, I'm just going to keep grinding. I'm going to get all the legendaries. Or, yeah. okay, I'm going to get the one legendary I wanted to get. Um, it's just at that point, you're, you're going to start grinding for that. You're going to grind gold and more gold. Also, back then, dungeons gave a lot of gold. A dungeon tour, 70 gold. Easy, mm-hmm. without counting in the materials. Just raw. 17. Huge. Uh, you, like, it, it all led to the situation where everything was already inflated in prices because there was no reason to spend it on anything new. There was, there was no new sink. There was no new thing to grind that was going to require materials that you were going to need to buy, exchange for other players, etc. You just needed to keep grinding to bring more gold into your wallet with a huge pile of gold, buy the stuff you want. Mm-hmm. And that was a time where also bots thrived. Like it was a time where we had the most bots, farming bots. Interesting. Uh, like you would, if you if you sat at the heart of the mists, the old heart of the mist, like the new one is ugly. I like the old one. Mm. Uh, if you sat there, I could assure you that within the first fifteen minutes, you would get a whisper uh, about wanting to buy gold at PvP Bank. Mm-hmm. And it actually became a meme in the community because they had a huge typo at the end of the message that would whisper or mail you. Uh, they wouldn't write "Have a nice day," but "Haste a nice day." <laughs> That's, I, that, that actually became a punchline at some point. I remember seeing that message a few times. Yeah, "Haste a nice day." That's that's an old Gilverse Two one. Nice yeah, so, yeah. This 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 whole thing, you know, this whole content drop led to to so many things going wrong in the game, and not purely going wrong for like the, the studio from a content perspective. Like you had Bobby Stein mm-hmm. tell you as as someone behind the game, we can never do that again. Right? And as a player I can tell you this should never happen again because it's just gonna create a situation that's gonna make the release of the expansion or, or of the next bit of content mm-hmm. a disaster. At the start mm-hmm. of Heart of Thorns, nobody knew what to do. You had people with literal bags of money attached to their waist who could just buy everything that was coming out. Like, anything that was new, why grind it? Buy it. Just buy it. Just buy it. Just throwing gold here and there. And if you were taking up the game, if you were starting as a casual, if you were doing anything like that, you couldn't mm-hmm. afford anything. And if mm-hmm. you need to grind for what you want to get in a player economy, then you're lost. I don't know if you've ever looked at these kind, like they were more popular back in the days, challenges on YouTube, like I'm going to make my legendary from scratch or uh, watch me uh, gear my account from scratch without using the trading post, etc. Mm-hmm. or without sharing with or trading with other players. There used to be a trope for that. And it was most interesting because in Gears 2, you're going to hit a wall. You can't possibly farm everything on your own unless you're Either a student with too much time, you know, expensive yeah. time, yeah. or you're ready to bash your head at walls. Like, mm-hmm. and, and that created a situation where the release of Heart of Thorn felt like a disaster. We had mm-hmm. maps that were too hard to play. Rock explained that very well. The metas were hard. Yeah. We felt underwhelmingly rewarding. Like we had currencies, we didn't need we didn't know what to get with them. We had materials that some had a utility, some had literally zero utility. I mean, like, right. a really slivers. Right. 
And at the start, the the whole um, like you needed for a guild hall, like guild hall that released a little bit later as well. You needed to have all the um, the, the slivers. Jesus, how were they called? Um, resonating slivers. That's it. That's the term. That's it. You need to have all of that to build your guild hall. But when it released, they weren't guild hall, so you, know, you had no use for it. What were yeah. you going to do? Just put them in your bank, sell them, toss them away. There was there was no clear direction of where we were going because for so long we were left with as an only goal: get wallet further or yeah. buy all legendaries. Make gold. And then everyone Spend was gold. like, "Yeah." Then everyone was like, "Okay, I mean, if I, if I'm going to sell a legendary, then I'm gonna I'm gonna upscale everything all the way." People who were farming gold had so much gold that the people who were farming uh, to get rare weapons, to get materials, were like, I can just price them higher because people are going to buy them higher. Like the, the buy orders kept pushing up the price. It, yes. it all kept the economy going upward and upward to a point where, yeah, when Hearthstone released, it felt wrong. Hmm. Like I remember having, like I had thousands of gold when HUT released, and I was like, I'm not going to buy anything. Because then it's just going to drop in price. And if I buy something to make something, it's going to auto-devalue itself within a few days because other people are going to get it. So it just felt like like too much time had passed and people weren't in the mindset to play an expansion anymore. Because mm. they had grinded everything that was available earlier. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so there, there was a, a little bit of that like on, on the matter of the content drought and how it affected the economy. And this can also take us to another tangent. Well, not a tangent, actually. We're going to stay in topic for that, but no, just... It's a miracle. Yeah, the other side of the economy. A miracle, you call it. <laughs> Let me ask you a question. You know, we're, we're turning the thing around. I'm the one asking questions now. Look Go at for me, it. the interviewer. Now. Um, what would you say is the most important item in Guild Wars 2 when it comes to the economy? Ecto. And you're right. Congratulations. I've watched your content. What is that? Oh, jeez. That's... <laughs> you're cheating. <laughs> I mean, that's... You know, I'll take the beauty of the gesture. I'm cool with that, but why? <laughs> why would uh, because, because, it's a, because it holds value in a stable fashion. As opposed yes. to, like, egg sacks or... Uh, where are some other popular things? Mystic coins, which are so volatile by comparison. Yeah. The reason why it holds value isn't because uh, isn't because it's uh, it's like supplied in a steady way or, or something or whatever. It's because it is centric in its acquisition yeah. and usage. Salvaging you get rares. rares. Yes. Rares which are given to you anytime you farm content at level... 68 or better mm-hmm. and from from that from that moment you have a steady stream of vectors and they have a steady way out as well they're used to craft inscriptions insignias gear runes sigils they're used yeah. to craft everything you're going to use to play the actual game so they have this very centric position and you can you can see what's happening in the game economy by looking at how the ecto trends back when we had the content draws we had the Ecto Gamble, and we had nothing to use our Ectos on. Ectoplasms were 55 silver. Wow. Today they're 20 silver. That. Yeah. 
ectoplasms were huge. It was at the point where you would be happy getting more ectos than gold at the ecto game. Because you'd make money. <laughs> like, the ectos were just like... Yeah, and like the the whole ecto gambling was actually designed with that price of ecto in mind, which is why today it's horrible. Nobody touches it. It's bad. But back then, you make gold. Like ecto gambling streams were a thing. You could go for hours. I've seen them. Yeah, cool. I remember watching yeah. them. So hang on, let me make sure I understand this. Um, ecto gambling becomes valuable when ectos are have an have an inflated price. But when the economy is in good shape, ecto gambling becomes. Is it the ecto gambling in general is worse, or is it just that you're hoping for the gold payout rather than the ecto payout? You're actually when when the ecto is doing good, an ecto payout isn't a loss, which uh, makes it rather interesting because then it it like gambling. You're not always going to win, so it becomes a way to take money and ectos out of the economy, and ectos right. being the centric item. You're taking gold out of the economy, so it was a very good sink. Mm -hmm. a good introduction as a sink and and sinks are something that i'm having a love and hate relationship with okay which takes us to another piece of content for this podcast see how we're going there like you planned it sinks. let's go <laughs> sinks in yours too have been very important since the beginning of the game mm -hmm. like this is this is a part of the game where you weren't playing so it's one that i'm going to describe and hope that you Please. can like to take and understand Back when Guild Wars 2 released, obviously everything was overpriced because we could farm items, but we didn't have any way to get gold. Because the two ways of getting gold are you complete content that gives you a fixed gold reward, for instance, dungeons, for instance, mm -hmm. completing events, or you have high gold fine, which means that every time you get coin from opening a bag, from uh, slaying a mob, etc., then, then that gold value gets bigger. Mm -hmm. Gold find being something you can you can always keep increasing. Like even today you can keep increasing your gold find yeah. by doing your your like it's uncapped, right? Targets. Yeah, it's, it's not capped. Keep going. Like you, you get that coin, you just double click it every month and you're like, gonna keep going up. Yeah, it feels good. Yeah. I mean it's account progression, right? Feels always yeah, feels yeah. good to have account progression. Yeah. And so we we had a situation at the very start of the game where Items were overpriced. You couldn't buy them. You couldn't afford them. Everything was too overpriced. Like back then, there, there were stories of people. Like it became a story on Reddit, and that's going to be a very good example. There was this one guy who got the game on day one. Within the first week, the only thing that he did was farming bats, literal bat trash mobs. Not even veteran mobs. Not even champions. Bats. Okay. He killed bats. He got vials of blood. Vials okay. of blood were needed to make gear, like to progress in the game. Mm -hmm. You did the vials of blood to make power precision gear, you know, the, the one that allows yes. you to do damage, the, like, the lesser berserker. So he needed the vials of blood. And so that man, he just sold all his vials of blood. He got one, he sold it. That, he, he did that. With his meager few gold, like from, from selling that, because people mm -hmm. were desperately buying the vials of blood. With that gold, he bought gems. 40,000 of them. Because back then you oh could get thousand gem. You could get two thousand gem for three, four gold, man. At release, <laughs> that's how that's how easy it was. Like we talked about it in, in Guild Man's podcast the other day. Back at release, my best friend Max, whom I mentioned earlier, the one who got me into the game, right? Uh -huh. He bought a twenty-five euro gem card. He got two K gems for it, which translated into 
five gold, 60. Oh, God, that's painful. Because back then, we, like, it goes both ways, right? Like, back then, we had so little gold in the economy that he couldn't exchange his gems for much gold. And trust me, five gold, 60 was a lot. You could buy so many things with that. For 40 gold, well, 35 gold, you had Dusk. Yeah, okay. Different yeah. world. Yeah, different world, right? That's and so that man, he just, he just gold he, he, he got by farming bats, his 40k gems. He came back to the game a little bit after Heart of Thorns, where, when gem prices were through the roof. Everybody had gold in their pockets. Yeah, yeah. So, of course, the gem price skyrocketed. And the dude just came back and he was like, so I got 40k gems. I can just change that back into almost a million gold. What do I do now? Okay, maybe not a million gold, but like, okay, he could exchange it for like, Hundred, like hundreds of thousands, right? 40K gems is a lot. So what's like the return on that investment? That's, that's crazy. It's probably, it's probably the biggest return of it on an investment in the whole Gear Wars 2 story. Like story. I, I'm pretty sure you can still find that Reddit topic or child somewhere, but uh-huh. that gives you, that gives you an idea. So that's how the game started. And then at some point, we got to the point where people had gold and no need for materials. That was late 2013. Okay. More or less. Late 2013, you know, we had we had fractals that, that were starting to be a thing. Like right. they were released. They were released, I think, late uh, late 2013, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. Like okay. I, can, I can get corrected by either the chat, the YouTube comments, whatever. I mean, chat isn't too active, but maybe someone will step up just to correct me. Um, the Fractals meant that you needed ascended gear mm-hmm. to put your agony resistance in to be able to tackle the hardcore challenge further right. and further. And at that point, Arnold created the first major sink in the history of Guild Wars 2, at least to my understanding. I'm not saying I know everything, so I'm just going to go with that postulate. Okay. They added ascended crafting. Yes. To make Ascended materials, you needed mithril, you needed the, the tier 5 leather, you needed all the tier 5 materials right. to make the tier 7 materials. Mm. Hey, Orichalcumor wasn't needed. Yeah. Wasn't needed. I always it thought was that was weird. It was a tier 5 materials. Why? Because they were in a situation where they were so oversupplied that when I did a dungeon tour, mm-hmm. When I savaged my items in my inventory, because we had the copper fits of a dramatic magnet, so I savaged the items in my yeah. inventory. You know what I did with the silver and the, I mean, not the silver, with the, the silk and the hard leather? I you merged them? Oh, man. I merged them, yeah. Why? Because you couldn't even sell them on the There's trading. There's too much. It's too much in the there economy. Was too much. There, were, there was. Like, you couldn't even list them on the trading price. There were millions at the bottom price. You know, the price under which you can't go. Yeah, yeah. That bottom price. Yeah. yeah. There were millions there. So it was easier, faster, simpler, same cash to just vendor them. Some people even threw them away. They were like, I, I can't Why care bother? for, yeah, I can't care for like three silver guys. And I just tossed them away. Like, okay. I'm not even going to try and go and find a vendor. And so they, they introduced such a huge sink that required so much of them. Like you needed, um, I think it was uh, 100 bolts of silk, so 300 base silk. Yeah. You, needed, you needed like 400 base leather, etc., for one unit. 
of which you need three of to make one piece of a solid gear. Mm-hmm. It was crazy. And that, that created such a shift in the economy with this first major sink. Like, it fixed something that went wrong. Mm-hmm. In a situation that goes wrong, you, you can measure that by either there is too much gold in the economy or it's to the point where people vendor stuff because it's simply not worth it. Okay. And lately, we've seen these tents come back. Arinet has tried to fix some items that were oversupplied and underused. Example, like coarse sand being used for mm. the first vision infusion. That's probably the best modern example of that. It's in a situation, <laughs> we had millions on it on the trading post. Only used for coarse sand, you can make glass mugs for your guild hall. Dope, right? You Super. can use it in a few Heart of Thorns collections, mostly mm-hmm. uh, the spirit stuff for Nevermore. Dope stuff again, right? Or you could make the Eternal Sense Focus, which was such a money loss that it's even cheaper to buy it on the trading post. No joke. <laughs> so at that point, they needed to introduce a new sink for it. Mm-hmm. And a sink that, that would revitalize uh, the silver waste. And I think that the reason why we the reason why we saw that is because they had in mind to change the spirit charge drops from chain bags. And chain bags you get a lot of in silver wastes. Mm. So they do. They needed to like properly balance it up before nerfing it. I see. And that's so- that's good economy management. Something that we hadn't seen between before Heart of Thorn and let's say creation of the rewards team in 2020. Mm. The worst team is the team at Arnonet that organizes event rewards, event planification, economy management, etc. It's it's like it's a, a jack of all trade teams. They're they're mm-hmm. the big respect for them. Speaking about the Economist, that takes us to another point. Are you familiar yeah. with the name of John Smith? Yeah, he was the old uh, used to be the, the data scientist at Arnonet. Exactly. He was the OG economist. He wasn't only the data scientist. Like He had a hand in a lot of data, and another person that had a hand in a lot of data was... Uh, his Twitter handle is Shazbot. Uh, Chris Cleary? Chris, yeah, Chris Cleary, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. He also handled a lot of data. These two guys were the data dudes. Okay. And John Smith used that data to balance the economy, and he had some very interesting discussions before he got reined in. On the Girosu forums. Like you could find him posting on his RNNet account on the Girosu forums, answering economy questions from people. Huh. Like people who nowadays are barons, like uh, Anko, Wanze, all the big names. Uh, uh. Even Dan, who like they don't have Wanze, Dan, not as active anymore, but Anko, very active. They asked okay. him questions and he answered. He, he was a guy who was very upfront about stuff. At some point, someone even asked him, How did you become an online? economy master mm-hmm. he was like i never studied any of that here's my resume by the way and he literally posted on the forum his resume okay. it, it read john smith on it so no problem everyone already knew his name no problem but he i think he like <laughs> blanked the the area in which he studied and lived but it was like you could see his curses you could see the, the type of jobs he had that was, he was very out there very engaged yeah that was super super interesting because not only was it good communication but it was also a way to, to have someone answer you and to realize that decisions were made from tangible data, right. which is something that we didn't have between the content draw and 
creation of the rewards team. Between these two, the sinks felt very, very poorly made. So Hearththorns, Season 3, Path of Fire, Season 4. And then Icebrood Saga was 2019 into 2020. So the rewards team would have come in mid-Icebrood. The rewards team came in, I think, Icebrood, yeah. Icebrood, okay. it was already being, being built. I think the job, the job listings for what we identified to be the rewards team came in 2019. So we can assume the team was full running 2020. Okay. Um, and why the drop-off during the content drought of 2015? I don't know. Like, John Smith at some point left our internet. I, yeah. I'm not able to say the reason why. Not because I want to hide it, but because I'm not sure of it. And I don't uh-huh. like misleading people. So I'm not going to take... speculate. He's not yeah, there I'm not anymore. Yeah. Sadly, because he was dope. I miss John. Everyone misses John. Mm. Um, but the you could really feel that there was no direction with the way things were do, were going because mm-hmm. you could generate so much gold doing dungeons. You could exchange that gold for materials that people farm, like materials just went through the roof. Like mm-hmm. tier six blood, 80 silver, 85 silver, sometimes even a gold per blood. I remember that, that price. Yeah, yep. that was crazy. Making my power ascended gear. Yeah. Right, like it made no sense. You you wanted to make a power infusion, you would literally have to murder your wallet. Yeah. But yeah. That let's put that under the rug for now. But okay, you, you could really feel that the economy wasn't going in any specific direction, and like Hearthstone released, the economy made no sense. We mm-hmm. got infusions, we got cosmetic infusions with that. Before that, right. we had the Halloween infusions, the winter infusions, nothing too crazy, right? And they were they were so rare that people with a lot of money were like, just gonna hog that. Yeah, I got all let's this money. Might as well use it. By, yeah, let's make them unattainable by by anybody else. If I if I get ten in my delivery box and I tell people I only got two and only put two up for sale for other people on third party websites, then people will really think there are only two of them. Mm. You know, that's gonna keep the price at like twenty thousand. So, so just get them for ten. When we say get ten, you mean buy them? Yeah, put it by order on the trading post. Okay. That's that's okay. viable gold baking, by the way. Like that that used to be, right? Now infusion crashed a bit, but that used to be a thing. Like you just put the buy order for 10k gold, you wait for it to come, might take two weeks, might take a year, wait for it to come, send it back for 20k, not profits. Not many investments can boast oh, to be plus one hundred percent through a year. And that's because the actual value of that item is above the trading post gold cap. But some mm-hmm. people will just sell on the trading post because they don't know or because they're just lazy? Because they don't know or because they're afraid of using a, a third-party uh, player-to-player trading website. Yeah. And is, is that, is a third, is, is a trading website like that something that's within the t- terms of service? Definitely. Okay. Like, I mean, as a matter of fact, for to Exchange, which was the first let's say, organize uh, a trading place that was made. Right now, it's a little bit overshadowed by the uh, Gear Wars 2 TP uh, community. Mm-hmm. But uh, Gear Wars 2 Exchange was the, the very first thing that came out. It was very, very shortly after Heart of Thorns, actually, that it started being a thing, and it became bigger with Path of Fire, of course. Okay. Uh, and is the main reason this economy exists because of the trading post cap, or are there other reasons? Because because of the trading post caps, and because also we hate taxes. Taxes sucks. Oh, 
the fifteen percent um, off the top exactly. for every transaction, which which used to be different. That's going to be an opportunity for me to reveal some funny information to you that maybe your viewers will enjoy. Okay. Um, but but first, on, on the topic at hand, this community actually we we were directly in line with the the head of customer support at the time, mm-hmm. uh, lead GM Dorn Singer. Oh yeah, okay. Really big name in the legion. Like she, yeah. I think that's she, validated what we wanted as guidelines for the associations. We're like, we want this to be a community where trades can happen that are fine with our internet. So it was like items for items or items for gold. No yeah. uh, items for money, no items for stuff from other games, just within Gilwars 2, within what you can do in the game. Gems? we decided not to allow it yeah a little fuzzy makes sense yeah like because because it can go very wrong because then at that point you're you're basically opening rmt ish doors yes not rmt jason makes sense okay okay i mean like if if someone rmt's gold to buy items to exchange for another items then that's also super hard to track and we're like if it happens, customer support will take care of that. For anything else, we try and, and have very good control. Yeah. There was a reputation system, etc. A lot of work went into it. Oh, interesting. Okay, I didn't know about this. Like, Gersu Exchange was a very great project when it started, and I'm super happy to have been part of it from almost day one. Oh, neat. Okay. Yeah, like, I mean, it was, like, back in the days, like, I, okay, let's let's just talk about Gersu Exchange for a bit, but... You need like to, to think about the fact that if you want to install player-to-player trading, there is no there is no like trade validation window between players. Everything is done by mail. You send one, you receive one. It's not it's not time that the same. Like there are some online games where you have a player trading window, you put your items on top, they put the item on the bottom, and it is a validation from both ends. And you both agree. Exactly. In Gears 2, you send, you receive. Maybe. So there needed to be a proper way to handle the exchanges, and that was the middlemaning system. Mm. Just to say, one of the mods of Gilras to Exchange will be online at the time at which you will want to do your exchange to handle it with you. Hmm. Hmm. And like the idea was, they're gonna mail so there's us. There's a staff because, for this. I mean, there is still a staff to this day. There, there are still demands that we get by mail. I still get DMs on Discord of people who are like, uh, I made a post on Gross to Exchange and I have a buyer. Can you middleman? Huh. The idea was that we took four people that had great reputation in the game. One was the founder of the Gilwars 2 Economy subreddit, Wanze, mm-hmm. also a very big poster on the Gilwars 2 forums on the, about the economy. Because hmm. originally... Talks like the Gears 2 forum used to be less moderated back in the days. Mm-hmm. So a lot of stuff that you find nowadays on Reddit used to be there. Like right. all the talks about, about fractals, dungeons that were a bit elitist, toxic, etc. That happened on the Gears 2 forums. Mm-hmm. It was not too heavily moderated. And actually, you know, people like Gail Gray were very happy to take part in these conversations. Yeah. They, they were interacting with us on the forum, like, oh, okay, like what you're doing is fun, uh, or your dungeon stream was nice, whatever. It happened. Mm-hmm. There was a there was a little bit of an economy subsection where people talked about. Wednesday was very known there. Enco was also very known there, mm-hmm. known for being one of the rich people, spreadsheet maker, big brain, doing a lot of stuff. Dan okay. was the same. Out of all of us, 
I was the only one with an actual YouTube channel, with an actual content creation place. I get it. And that's that's why I was invited into it. Like they were all known in in the game for what they were doing, and uh, and I was known for what I was doing on YouTube. And, and so we put a pretty face on it. Four, I mean, that team of four was like the original team to to manage stuff. Okay. Once okay. and I were on the EU time zone, whereas Anchor and uh, Dan are on each side of the states. Got so it. they could cover the rest of the time zone. There was always one of us ready to handle something. And and that was great. Like it created a system in where people could do player to player trading, which before that did happen, but without a middleman. And there were so many instances of people sending a legendary, never receiving gold, etc. Yeah. Internet tried to crack down on that by doing the five hundred gold cap. Uh, that wasn't always the case. At some point, you could send any amount you wanted by mail. Right. Yeah, any amount you wanted. Like you yeah. could send. You could send like two. Like I remember selling legendaries for like, let's say two point five k gold and getting these two point five k gold directly in one mail, and I could retrieve all of that in one mail. Mm-hmm. Crazy, right? So that was the I... thing. Okay. Okay. And which is also going to take me to the other thing I wanted to say, which was a very funny bug on Trading Post at some point, mm-hmm. which was most welcome when we when we couldn't send big mails anymore with more than five hundred gold and retrieve them. That bug was that if you sold to to buy order, like I mean, okay, how to say that? If you sold at the lowest possible price, like example, selling Eternity for one silver, nine copper, mm-hmm. you sold at the most bottomish price, you would only pay taxes on that amount that you wrote. But your item would still sell to the highest by order. Oh, interesting. So imagine you want to sell your eternity. By order is at 3.5 thousand. Mm-hmm. The sell order is at 4,000. Mm-hmm. You can list at 4,000. You're not sure it's going to sell. And you're going to pay 600 gold in taxes. You know, 15%, 4,000, 600 gold in taxes. Mm-hmm. Or you could, you know, sell it at one silver, nine copper, or whatever amount of silver that was. You could, like, list it at that price. You, you would write in the listing that price. It would sell to the buy order at 3.5k, and you would pay 15% taxes on one silver. Okay, you get so you would save yourself, like, almost, like, almost 100 600 gold. gold. Yeah. You, you'd save yourself 100, because you, you did sell it for less. You'd make an extra 100 gold, and you were sure it would sell since you sold it to a buy order instead of listing it and maybe getting undercut. Oh. That was that was a bug that wasn't that widespread because whoever knew it wanted yeah, to Yeah, I never heard about it. Yeah, well, I mean, nowadays it doesn't exist anymore, so it's fine to talk about it. Interesting. So that was a way and to that, dodge the taxes, yeah. The the gold sink, which is what it is, right? It, it's it's a gold sink on on transactions, the biggest yeah, they're the biggest gold sink in the game. Um, a most esteemed colleague of mine, uh, Silver, the guy who who works on his own API, Silveres, like he. I saw your interview with uh, Silver. Yeah, actually, that was the, the very first time I interviewed someone on on, uh-huh. on my channel. It was it was a really it was cool conversation. 
like he, he has so much to teach people and he's such a genuine person he doesn't mm. he doesn't try to like lie about an achievement or something that he has done so he just his experience is valuable to anyone mm. like he's he's the kind of person that it feels great to talk with yeah so i really like that and um at some point he made something around the release of path of fire and he was like first week or first month of path of fire and i think that was it uh, here is the amount of gold that moved in the economy and the amount that was paid in taxes. And I think taxes were numbered in millions of gold. Huh. Imagine 15% of each transaction for each gold spent on the trading post, one way or the other, 15%. Yeah. And the interesting thing is that unless you have a service like the exchange, there's no other option. Exactly. And or let's, before you could send via mail, but then, you know, 500 gold But cap. then it's a risk. You, you have to do it with someone you trust, you know, yeah. which if you're just selling materials, like you don't, you aren't going to know people and you still have to go to the trouble of finding a buyer, which is a big hassle when you just pay the trading post to do it. Yeah. And actually back then, uh, there were, there were a lot of, uh, there were a lot of workers who were people buying legendaries and going through their uh their guild their guild members their guild mates even the the chiefs of the guild to mm -hmm. do that like mm -hmm. i i had as customers for uh for gold making yeah i had these warfare social players i would be like okay you do a word exploration i'll bring in the rest of the gold we'll make a legendary together and at the end you send me the legendary and i'll pay you for your efforts that yeah. was the concept of gift of mastery selling that still exists to this day, uh, existed very strongly until the spirit chart update, little, little dying right now. But that was that was a huge thing in the economy and one of the, like I think that was probably one of the most deciding things in the economy that the gift of mastery selling because it it made people crazy rich. Gildemem, for instance, has millions of gold, made almost solely on that. Because he managed a network of gift of mastery selling. Let's. I want to talk to you about that. But before you, before I before I ask you about that, I just remembered. I had one transaction where I skipped a trading post one time ever that I can remember, which is I got a precursor that I didn't want because I wasn't going to make the legendary because I never had a lot of gold. I didn't really care about the <laughs> the economy part of the game. I think it was. Um, what, what what what's the precursor for Tooth of Frostfang? The one-handed axe from the Gen One. I can't think of. What it's uh, called. I mean, Frostfang is a legendary, and Tooth of Frostfang is a precursor. Oh, okay. So Tooth is a precursor. So yeah, so you got it correct, I, man. For sure. I I uh, found via trade chat. I think I found uh, a buyer for it, and uh, they just mailed me the gold that I asked, and I was like, hmm, this is an interesting situation to be in. I have the gold, and I have the axe. What should I do? And uh, I sent the axe, of course. But yeah. It was an example of what you're talking about. Yeah, like the, the whole reason why we have middlemen is to have very trusted individuals. Like there are individuals yeah. where if, if it's known that we scammed someone, it would ruin us. Because we, we cultivate a quality image of someone trustworthy. Yeah. If you don't have that, you're you're out of the game. Another aspect of that too that is interesting is that like a reading that would make the choice to not have a trading interface that would allow for the establishment of an agreement. Um, I've read that, I think I've heard it suggested either for this game or other games that sometimes the choice to allow player trading is based on how big of a 
GM staff you want. Because yeah. a, a ton, and, and also if you look at World of Warcraft, which is a game that went from having shared loot that you decided on to a game where everyone got individual loot, similar to Guild Wars 2. Um, basically, anytime you leave matters of loot acquisition up to players to decide among themselves, it creates disputes, and disputes create support costs. So in a way, the exchange is kind of like a defrayment of that cost by reading that. Uh, which is kind of an interesting notion. I wonder if you've given that any thought. <laughs> I mean, I completely, I completely agree with what you're saying right there. Because if you like the amount of tickets that were generated from people, you know, just um, having issues with trading within the realm of Guild Wars Two Exchange, like you can't even imagine what would happen outside of mm -hmm. it. It's just crazy. Like we, like, we managed to handle a lot of stuff. And whenever someone was not using a middleman and was getting scammed, they would mail us the name of the scammer. We add them to the, to the scam list. And they would ask our internet, like the customer service, for some help. So mm -hmm. imagine if, if you had prior-to-prior -prior transaction, like it would, it would skyrocket. Mm -hmm. maybe, maybe like half of the mails we got were middleman requests. And another half was, I didn't ask for a middleman and I got scammed. To which we would say, like, tough luck, buddy. I mean, we, we kind of made a system so that won't, won't happen. But yeah. Yeah, okay. Okay, interesting. Um, mm -hmm. You were just about to launch into an explanation of the Guild of Bastry scheme, which I desperately want to understand. Um, okay. But before I do that, it's been another, like, 90 minutes or so, and I need another little break. Um, do you want to right. take another, like, like three-minute break and come back to it? Sure, we can do that. No problem. Okay. It's just, I'm, I'm probably not going to last for another like two hours. Just I understand. You know what? When we get back, let's figure out what else we want to talk about, and we'll finish this thing up. Sure. Cool. All right. Be right back, folks. We're returned. I'm Deeg, talking with Sam Ajeste. Guild Wars 2, Guild Wars 2 economy. Going deep. Seriously deep. deep. So deep. I'm about to get buried. I promised before the break that we were going to talk about um, the gift of mastery scheme um, uh, employed to su successfully by Guild MM and laid out in some other content, but I still don't really get it, and I'd like to. Maybe you can help me understand it, Sam. Um, right. The gift no. of mastery is a component of legendary weapon creation, correct? Exactly. Yeah. And that's for all Gen 1. Is it Gen 2 legendaries as well? It is only Gen 1. Only Gen 1. Okay, so, so Gen 2 it got replaced by the gift of Magium Mastery, uh -huh. which is tied to the maps from Heart of Thorn. And in Path of Fire, you can get an ersatz of it that allows you to make the Gen 2 legendaries, because some of them were released post Heart of Thorns. Right. Even though they were an HT promise. You know, kind of weird, bad content pacing. Uh, you know, wink yeah. at what we were talking about earlier. One more of those moments, exactly. Yeah. So what uh, is it that made? Is gift of desert mastery. Makes sense. I think I remember that when I was looking over it. Uh, I only ever crafted the one legendary myself. Uh, it was uh, Sunrise I made. Actually, uh, at the time oh, when did. I was starting Guild Wars, I got into it because my wife was interested. I'm like, oh, I'm going to play a video game with my wife. Holy shit. I never thought that was going to happen. And um, we both made Sunrise together when the collection oh. system came out after Heart of Thorns. Okay. It was really fun. I was on my warrior. She was on her guardian. It was uh, a really cool moment. 
I think Sunrise was also my first legendary. It's such an iconic, iconic so piece of art. It's so beautiful. It's beautiful. Like I, I, I always try to skin away from it when I'm playing Graceword on my Warrior because like I, I like some variety. But I always come back to it within a few days. I'm like, come on, how could you not? Yeah, like it's the same for me. I, I can't move away from my sunrise. It's <laughs> it's my sunrise. I still play with it to this day. It's the great yeah. one I use on my ranger, my main character. Nice. But, uh, but yeah, so on the on the issue of the gift of mastery, which is not really an issue, yeah. nor would I really call it a scheme. It's okay. a system. Okay. It's a system. At like earlier, we were were sort of going on a tangent, but actually being very in topic by talking about what people fart. Like you can mm-hmm. farm a map, you can farm dungeons, you can farm materials, you can farm for something else. Yeah. You can farm in real life flipping burgers if it's better gold for you per hour mm-hmm. by converting gems. Because of the gold standard. Exactly. So that's that's where it goes. Where things become very interesting is there are some farms that don't give you uh, a definite item that you're going to sell, but that give you progression that is tied to an account, which is necessary towards making a higher value item. For instance, farming spirit shards gives you spirit shards that you can then use for conversions and make profit on. You were mentioning earlier that you made spreadsheets about Mystic Mm -hmm. Forging, so you're probably aware of that. Yes. Back in our days, we had the Egg Baron spreadsheet, which still works to this day, I believe, although it's Mm. a bit broken. Um, And... At some point, people realized that this kind of account progression could be purchased from other people by just sending them everything they needed to craft the final product and then retrieving the final product, mm-hmm. providing compensation naturally. Because this legendaries idea- from Gen 1 are bind on equip. So you send over all the, all the materials to make a Gen 1 legendary. Yeah. The, the seller produces the gift of mastery puts it all into the pot and makes it and then and then sells it back to okay so just mails it back to you and you send them money for the gift of mastery that you purchased the going rate lately was 500 gold for a gift of mastery and what you're buying with the gift of mastery is to not have to do a new round of map exploration of the entire core interior which is a lot of work yes as a legendary trader that allows you to produce legendary at an extremely fast pace. Mm-hmm. You can make multiple legendaries in a day. And if on each legendary, you're going to make a profit of, let's say, 800 gold compared to the price of materials plus, uh, I mean, like when That's you use the high margin. Together, like, imagine, okay, materials to make the legendary. Let's, let's, uh, let's take an actual case at hand. Okay. With prices that are maybe not that correct, but... You make, we'll make a dusk that Perfect. you're going to sell for 2.5k. Like you okay. make, I mean, a twilight that you're going to sell for 2.5k. Back in the days when Gift of Mastery selling started to be a thing, you'd buy the GOM for 500 gold. You'd buy the Precursor for 1,000. That's already 1.5k gold on the side. Mm-hmm. Then you have the Gift of uh, gift of Mike, Gift of Magic, etc. that goes with it. Um, usually you'd have the, the person make like uh, the Mystic Clovers, you'd send them also some uh, some gold for that. So let's say there is another like another few hundred gold on that. Okay. And then you sell the legendary, so you, you get your 2.5k gold. 
because that's after taxes, 2.5K. So you get the 2.5K mm-hmm. goals and you maybe spend 2.1K, 2.2K total. You made 300 goals. Imagine making right. that multiple times a day across yeah. multiple legendaries. Because once again, people were farming some gold and buying legendaries with gold. Yeah. Because some people yeah. don't want to buy expiration and they don't want to buy the expiration from someone else. So you find, you find yourself at the middle of the whole matter where you can sell a legendary to someone who doesn't want to grind for it. Yeah. And you can also buy the grindy part from someone who doesn't have gold to make the legendary himself. He can't buy the materials nor the precursors. And he, he maybe doesn't want to have to farm for actual gold to get to that point. So you're just going to give him gold for what he's fine farming. And it was especially a hit with War vs. Sword players because at some point for Gift of Mastery, you needed War vs. Sword exploration. Right. And, and that made it so that only people who were, you know, dabbing a little bit into War vs. World would really be able to produce Gifts of Mastery in a timely mm-hmm. manner. So, yeah, there are a few people so who had those gifts. Because War vs. World people were always poor. I mean, it's a meme. It's a reality. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, yeah. And, like, they, they were such a good, a good target for them because they, they hated doing PvE and farming. So you would right. just tell them, okay, do map exploration. Just, just go around the map. That's all you need to do. Then you play a War vs. World part for the Gift of Battle and the War vs. World exploration. And since mm-hmm. you're a War vs. World player, you do that easy. And, we're, and you were like, I give you 500 gold for your troubles. And so you get everything. You sell the legendary. They made 500 gold for their efforts. They're happy. You made a few hundred gold for literally no effort. You're happy. Mm-hmm. The only thing you do, and that's the only reason why there is profit in this operation, is because you take the entirety of the risk of it not selling upon yourself. Right. <coughs> Sorry. Sorry. Yeah, it makes calf. sense. And also facilitating and finding buyers. Like, there's labor in that. There, there, is, there is a bit of labor in that, but, like, sincerely, you could make legendaries through that model and list them on the trading post and they would sell within the day or yeah. the next few days. I used to take part in that. I sold maybe 50 to 100 legendaries through that kind of system myself. Mm-hmm. By finding people, like, I mean, as a streamer back then, I had a lot of offers. I had people right. in the chat saying, yo, you, would you buy a gift of mastery for 500 gold? And I'd be like, yeah, man, just, you know, uh, DM me. We're going to find a way. Yeah, it's like too good so to pass a, up. So yeah, let like, me think about I, this for I a second. Profit, they make gold profit, that's right. Yeah. Let me think about this for one second. Sure. I'm trying to think about what what, what the incentives look like here, because... As a person who's making gold from this, I understand the incentive is quite clear. It, 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 it's a novel way to leverage a, an item who is, I think, probably the cost is relatively low compared to the, appet- to, to, to the supply of people who are producing the gifts. It, I don't think there are a lot of people who like... I think most players would like to have multiple legendaries, but most players would not like to have multiple map completions. I'm sure there's some exceptions to that, but that seems to be what I've seen. Just one reminder, I'm going to interrupt you very shortly. You get two gifts of exploration per map exploration. Okay, so you can make two legendaries. Yeah, exactly. Or sell sell two gifts if you... That part, exactly, yeah. Yeah, and because the Gen 1 legendaries are buy not equip, unlike which the Gen 2s were not, you can leverage the account the account locked parts of the progression and what that does I need to think about this some more probably 
maybe we should talk about it for, for another minute. Okay. Uh, because or again, I, like sum it up very simply for you once more. If you yeah, want. you've 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 done the mental labor on this. So help me understand like what kind of effect this has altogether. Right. So as a player, either starting out in Guild Wars 2 or being a little bit more of a veteran in Guild Wars 2, you will at some point have explored part of the maps. You maybe be at like 40%, 50%, you've maybe gone around for the story, etc. Yeah. You've yeah. already done part of the job. I have a few okay. characters that as alts, I just I bumped straight to 80 and they have like 60% map completion just from doing random stuff. Yeah, exactly. And so so there is that as the first step. Mm-hmm. And then you're gonna at some point uh, need some gold to do some projects. And if you don't like farming, or you don't like doing dungeons, or you're maybe just bad at, at doing Everyone that, gold. casual, yeah. hardcore, etc., you're going to want to get some gold. Mm-hmm. And then it's about selling your labor for something. And so if you think about it from the, the seller, like the GOM seller perspective, he's like, okay, I'm going to spend 15 hours something on this, but I'll mm-hmm. do my map exploration. I'll get two gifts for it. Then I'm going to spend maybe five hours in Warlords Resort to get two gifts of battle and the exploration, like the exploration over there. Mm-hmm. So after 20 hours of work, you have a good amount of spirit shards, two explorations, two uh, Warlords Resort gift of battles. So that means you're able to sell two GOMs. You've worked 20 hours and you can make a thousand gold. That's better okay. than any farm in the game. You're not yeah, going to farm 50, uh, 50 gold an hour. Yeah. And you can do you can do that while chilling. Like there were yeah, you some, can watch some crazy world expression. Yeah, you could watch Netflix, whatever you wanted, and do your world expression. I even when I was in Snow Crows, I had mm-hmm. guildies who would sell the gifts of exploration to me. They were like, Yeah, I'm just gonna spend the next few evenings chilling with the uh, with the series in the background, just moving my character, doing world exploration. You buy it? And be like, Yeah, sure. I'll buy them from you. Because mm-hmm. after all, in 20 hours, you made a thousand gold. And mm-hmm. usually a lot of people who did that, they would do it a few times. They would be like, okay, I'm, I'm going to sell maybe maybe like three explorations. So a total of six gifts, make 3K gold. And then I'm going to do another exploration. And on that one, I'm going to make myself two legendaries because I'll have the gold for it now. Yeah. And there's also like an economy of effort because... Yeah, what, like what you, you had to do to produce that that wealth is pretty relaxed, as you said, compared mm-hmm. to farm, even farming silver waste, which for many many people can do in their sleep, um, or like a fractal farm, which is much higher effort. Um, fractal farm is high effort. Yeah, dungeon tours were very high effort as well. Yeah, to make them efficient, like you you can do them. I mean, the reward is once once a day, right? So you can do them. Mm-hmm. But if you want to do them fast and do them all, get more reward for the same yeah, time frame, then you can be good. If you aren't doing it fast, or if you're wiping and stuff like that, then then it's it's less efficient than just doing something simpler, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So and that's the whole UN system in a nutshell. Just you buy someone else's labor, and you as a, as the buyer of the GUM get to make a margin because you take on the entirety of the risk of selling the legendary. Okay. Do you think that the reason that Gen 2 legendaries were not be by not equip were because of this kind of phenomenon, or do you think it was just unrelated? 
I think it was partly because of that. And there was also another another hand in the matter, which was uh, the fact that they wanted to make Gentle Legendaries feel like a journey with a goal yeah. in the end. Like they introduced the precursor collections for Gen 1 at the same time. And oh, I think the precursors so I get from the Gen 1 collections are bound. Yeah. Yeah. They wanted they wanted to like rebuild a connection between the players and the lore, the players and the game, and make it not so that you you'd grind to get stuff sell, but instead like play meaningful story, get mm-hmm. meaningful reward. Mm-hmm. Like do meaningful events, get meaningful rewards. Yeah, it's trying to um, to unboil unboil down because like if everything's a gold standard, you boil everything down to the simplest thing. And the meme yeah. is everyone just runs silver waste, right? Like you don't actually do mm-hmm. whatever you want; you do the simplest, most efficient thing. And yeah. it's so it, 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 it's almost like a false sense of freedom to have that kind of a general standard, unless you're someone who's actually not at all driven by that and just buy stuff when they feel like it. Like, I guess that's me because I never really played for those kinds of goals. Um, I forgot the point I was going to make. I mean, like on the, on the matter of the, of the gold standard, it's, um, it's like whatever, whatever item you're going to want in the game, besides infusions, besides items that are like uncorrelated to anything else, whatever you're going to buy in the game, it's going to be correlated to materials, actors, something. So at that point, you can determine, based on the value of an actor and on, in a nutshell, how many actors you're acquiring in a, in a time frame of farming a specific place, you can determine how worth it is to farm this place instead of another. And in, in Gears 2, you can see that the, the rewards team, that team again, has done a, a very good job because the gold you get in the different areas of the game is more or less close. Maybe bar a few gold. Okay. okay. Which means that you get the opportunity to farm whatever you want, and if you are good at something, then you can just maybe do that one better, and then it's not a farm, it's just something you're good at. For instance, you could farm silver waste, but if you're very good at the dungeon tour and had only two, three hours in a day, you'd be better off doing the dungeon tour. There's more gold per hour. If you're a little bit more chill, just do silver waste. You'll get almost as good gold, etc. That's that's just the way the, the game is meant. And if, if your kick is to numb yourself out in world exploration, then you can make the best gold. Because you're actually going to do something which is way, way harder, but can also be way more optimized. Mm-hmm. By finding the exact route, by already having some items in your inventory that you will trade at the vendor to complete the heart faster, etc. Like there is so much planning that went into speed running word completion. There were some mm. people that were trying to shave off minutes off a, off of a twelve hour record. Mm. And if you th- really think about it, like twelve hours in a world where you don't need to do word versus word exploration anymore, fifteen hours total for a thousand codes. Like, come on, man. yeah. What what a good world we live in. You you imagine you just play two hours a day and every week you pop a thousand gold. Even better than what would promise you. What being yeah, uh, I mean, an old dungeon guild that said, uh, join us and you'll get a thousand gold a month from our dungeon tours. Mm-hmm. Quite, quite a funny bunch. Or was it a hundred gold a week? A hundred gold a week, maybe. Yeah. I mean, a thousand gold a week, more like. But yeah, there were, um, like, there was a lot of stuff like that. Just 
gold was always the driving factor because mm-hmm. everything can be boiled down to gold or whatever else. And it was a matter of how well or how fast you could acquire it. Mm-hmm. I guess what I'm struck by is how few people actually play play that play the game that way. My impression is that most people I have this funny metaphor floating around in my head, and I'm not sure if it's accurate. Tell me what you think. You're painting the, mm-hmm. a picture that to me sounds like what the the gift that it's kind of like an all parties prosper kind of situation. The seller has a profitable transaction. I mean, I mean the, the seller gets to make money on something that they probably have and weren't going to sell anyway. And the buyer gets to make money on taking on the risk of facilitating the transaction. My perception as a layperson who's never really engaged with the economy is that I've always kind of felt like it's like a, like a second layer of PVP layered on top of the game. And it's the people like who like, um, like, like yourself who build the spreadsheets and put in the effort who get really good at the economy PVP, almost like benefiting from the people like me who don't want to put in the effort on the economy and we we'd rather lose money in order to get something else we value like to, for me for example i i'd rather spend my time um in the game doing things like focusing on social interactions and stuff like that or focusing on group content and not worrying too much about the outcomes or optimizations um and you're 100 correct about that i'm okay. just gonna I'm just going to actually tell you that right now. You don't even need to, to go any further in your thinking. You're correct. <laughs> okay. We, we used to call, you call it a layer of PVP. The exact coined term for it is PVTP, player versus trading post. <laughs> it's, it's, actually, it's actually a thing. Yeah, it's actually a thing. I've been losing at PVTP all this time, and I didn't even realize it until today. <laughs> it's it's a thing, and and the way we, the way we call it, like you know how the most basic action of flipping is uh-huh. buy low, sell high. Yeah, if you're yeah. the person who sells to my buy order, and tomorrow you realize you need that item and you buy it for you buy it from the sell order, then I I beat you twice at PVTP because mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. I got it from I got it for cheap from you and I'm selling it to you for way more. Right, I won twice. If you use the yeah. trading post as a convenience, yeah, mm-hmm. to hold stuff. And and not only that, but you're also paying the uh, the, the gold sink tax on top of that for each transaction. Yeah. Well, no, it's only you're for the seller. The first tax. Yeah, you're paying the first pay tax and you're paying the second one. Yeah. yeah. But obviously I'm making profit on it and you're losing money twice. But what am I gaining is the question. What you're gaining, okay, on day one, you maybe wanted the gold to buy something else or just wanted the gold to get your gold count up because you feel good about having more yeah. gold in your wallet. I'm getting so immediacy you farming, right now. Yeah, whatever, whatever you got from your farming or from your playing or from your hanging around with people, dwindling around in maps, mm-hmm. you, you sold it, you got the gold, you got the instant gratification. You feel like you have more gold and you feel better about it. Or, you, you sold it to buy something. Like you were like, oh, maybe I can buy that new Black Lion skin that just yeah. came out. Yeah. Let me just sell the vibes of blood I made while farming my, my tier six bags in, uh, in ore. I'm just going to sell that, done that, get the new skin. And then, and then you, know, you, know, you know what happened right there? So day one, 
you sold me your your vials of blood. Okay, I I sold them. I sold them back. You know, I got much more gold from flipping them. I still have some left over. With that gold, I put a buy order on the skin, which I got on buy order. I'm listing it back on the sell order. The day after, or or the same day, you buy that skin. So you already gave me gave me money twice. Like you gave me money when you sold for cheap. You gave me money when you bought my skin for more. Mm-hmm. And then the day after, you're like, ah, oh, shit, I have this new character. I need to gear and berserker gear. Ah, oh, damn, I sold my values of powerful blood yesterday. Let me just buy five of them real quick to make the inscription. Yeah. And then you buy them back again for me. I won yeah. three times. How are you feeling now? I PVTP'd you. Um, let's let me think about this. I'm you, feeling. You see I'm, doing, right? I'm feeling like I've. I've paid money to buy convenience. Exactly. You wanted something, and you have paid you convenience to get money. Yeah, I I made more clicks on the trading post than you. I spent more time checking my buy orders, resisting stuff, buying, selling, etc. Yeah. Than you did. You had very little clicks, and you had immediate results to your actions. Mm-hmm. While I decided to play the longer game, I waited to get something on cheap. Mm-hmm. I waited for it to sell on high. I clicked throughout all of that. But at the end of the day, I have more gold. Mm-hmm. And you also did all the work you needed to do up till that point to understand what a good price is, to even understand yeah. what those prices should be. And to exactly. even engage in that deal in the first place. That is true. Yeah. Like this, this is a part that takes a lot of effort. And this, this takes us back to my introduction where I said there was this point in, in business school, you know, I was, uh, I was a wee young boy. That was my third year of, uh, of higher education. Uh-huh. Uh, I was, I was 19 at the time. Yeah. Something like that. No, maybe, maybe a bit more. I was maybe 20, not more than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was in 20, no, 2013, I was 19. Third year of higher ed, I was, I was just 19. Um, so, well, as I started it. So, I had that finance class where we learned all these concepts, like, like uh, it, was, it was in terms of uh, handling uh, bonds and stocks, of course, because mm-hmm. finance oblige, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was like, Okay, so so opening day at the market, guy buys low, uh, price can go up and down at each uh, each second. You know, it it has a chance of going up or down. Like we would calculate probabilities and that and everything, which is which is how I managed to to fuck up like that one anecdote from the start because I was uh-huh, too focused uh-huh. mathematical uh, model instead of being focused on the underlying economy, mm-hmm. which is the whole difference between. Uh, between a, a bot doing investments and Warren Buffett doing investments. Mm, interesting. It's very interesting. It's able to pull in the cross-disciplinary insights, not just do the math. Yeah, like, so, uh, yeah, because Warren Buffett always research what he's going to buy, whereas yeah. other companies are just going to be like, okay, risen X percent last X days, we, we going in. Right. Because it's on the board. Okay. And so, like, Okay, so so that all that knowledge in, in your sermon, I I didn't feel like I worked to get my knowledge. I didn't feel right. like I had to put effort to get the knowledge because I realized as I had the classes that I liked this, and Girosu felt like the the perfect sandbox in which to put it to test. And that was a great like um, that was kind of serendipitous. 
that you would be involved in a game with a player-run economy like this. At the same time, you were learning that you like this stuff. Yeah, like it, it was all were very much welcome. And, uh, and to this day, I, I would still say that Guildmaster might not have gotten me my first job, but it definitely got me to where I am. Uh-huh. Not because of like content creation or whatever, but just because I wanted to learn about corporate finance, making spreadsheets, building some Excel skills. Mm-hmm. And that was the perfect place to start it a lot. Excel, baby. Love it. That is awesome, dude. And actually, now that we've gone through this explanation, I feel a little bit more peace about my bad transactions in, in Guild Wars of the past because I really did get something out of it. It just, it just was something different. Um, and maybe for me at that time, that was the right value assumption to make because I'm not just making decisions about my account. There are all kinds of decisions about how much time am I playing? How do I want to use that time? Um, what other games am I playing? That kind of stuff. And for you, you were bringing things from outside too, which is that you actually love this shit. You actually, the the process itself is rewarding. I'd imagine, I can imagine you actually doing this without making any Guild Wars profit, just as a fun thought experiment. That was definitely part of that. Like I, I even did some stuff that I knew was going to be a financial loss just because I wanted to see, will it work or not? You wanted to test your model. Exactly. I wanted Uh, to know if that would actually work out in the end. I did some very dumb buyouts because I was like, okay, there is no way this is going to work, but I need to confirm that it is going to fail miserably uh, just to to validate everything I've thought up until this point. That's brilliant. that is quite fun. And I, I think that a lot of people who uh, nowadays are, are like on, on the trending post side of the economy, because of course there is people who made all of their fortune mm-hmm. on player to player trading, like Guild Men, people more like Anchor, Dandes, etc., who, who make their gold mostly via the trading post still. All these people, they've gained from using Guild Wars 2 as a medium to learn. Oh. Okay. You learn to make spreadsheets. You, you test whether or not your formula is working by, by having tangible information that validates or invalidates it. You work in a direction, and you're going to not only develop real-life skills, you're going to develop some gold in the game that you can then use to do stuff that is more fun. Like You can give it away to people. You can buy the stuff that is shiny. You can do so much thing yeah. with it. Yeah. Like it's, all, it's all just a virtual cycle for yourself. You're going to improve yourself after. Yeah. And that's that's really how I would describe my Guild Wars 2 experience. I improved and I had fun. Yeah. There's this there's this um Ayurvedic uh Eastern medicine principle that I have a lay understanding of, but I think that kind of applies here. Uh it's called Dharma. And it's basically if if you I don't know if you know, but I'll explain for everyone else, um, even if you do. And if you do know, maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong. Uh the idea of Dharma is it's it's the thing that you're called to do and by passing through it you improve yourself and you also improve the world around you it's a calling usually to something that's outside of yourself but if you if you pass through that calling you will improve as a result and get something that's meaningful and like when i see you talk about finance and spreadsheets and trading post flips and gifts of exploration and sharing it with the world doing this podcast, all the other content you've done. 
see you on the on the the, the Barons podcast. I see, that's what I see. I see you and working on the exchange, and I'm sure a, a, a number of other things that that I don't even know about yet. I see someone who's realizing something important about themselves by by doing something for this community in a way. And uh, I just think that's badass, dude. I mean, like, I, I really appreciate your words because they're, they're very kind. That feels very nice to hear. Uh, and also, that's, that's definitely what Dharma is in the understanding that I have of it as well. It's also something that I take to heart a lot. Like, we started this podcast with me saying that there was stuff that I made because I like it and stuff that I made because I wanted it to be that way because that's the way it feels in the in the guiding line that I have determined for, yeah. for myself and for what I want to do. And, uh, and you know, some of my stances on, on content making around the economy has gotten me to, to be sometimes a, a little bit on the heated side with some people. Like, there is some stuff I would blatantly refuse to do. There is some stuff that I will call out others for doing as well, because there yes. is, like, to me, whenever you're going you're gonna to pretend or say that you're going to teach someone, it has to be genuine. Like, you don't stand to gain anything from teaching that person. And I think that's a small tangent right there. The, the beauty that there is behind teaching compared to an exchange of good. If tomorrow I sell you an apple like my dear friend Tybalt would, <laughs> I'll have one less apple and you'll have one less amount of money. Mm -hmm. But if tomorrow... I decide to teach my very good friend Deep Thoughts how to sell an apple. I know how to sell an apple. And now you know how to sell an apple. So there is one more person who knows how to sell an apple. Mm -hmm. And there isn't one less somewhere else to balance it. Which is why whenever you're going to be trying to teach people something, whenever you're, you're going to be making educative content or being in an educative field, you shouldn't be pursuing some form of gain. Because what you're doing is bringing something to people, mm -hmm. which is an act of creation. Teaching is an act of creation. Uh -huh. At least in the way that I understand it. Both of my parents are teachers, by the way. So mm -hmm. that, that helps out. That helps out a bit with the, the conception I have of things. But so... That's that's really how it is, and this is this is why there there are some stances on the economy, be it of people close to me or further away from me, that I have disagreed with. Mm -hmm. Like in in some content, I have criticized some of the stuff that TP does, because mm -hmm. they will have a tendency to to want to keep some people as producers, keep people as a middle class, and keep some people as the higher end maintaining. Ah. So like you have people who are going to make gifts of masteries. You're going to have people who are going to buy these gifts and masteries and take on the risks of selling on the trading post. You're going to have people who are going to get paid in legendaries, exchange that for extremely expensive infusions or stuff like this, who are going to profit yeah. the most. And if you trade. can control who does what, if, if, if you control the flow of information, exactly. you can make money in the information gap. 
not not necessarily on the information because information is available anywhere to anyone if they if they wish to have the information they will find it be it on my channel be it on someone else's channel if you want to know how it works you find it i mean i, I found it originally when back in 2014 when i was curious about the economy i read forums i read the givers to ones i read a lot of other ones i read websites like givers to guru mm-hmm. i went to, to all the websites that had TP or Baron in their names. The mm-hmm. only thing I didn't do was paying for, for like private info or stuff like that because that mm-hmm. felt very wrong to me. And that's that's like why I, I call out some stuff that TP would do, for instance, like when, when they were like, we're going to fix a price for spirit charts and we're going to tell people it's worth that much. I was like, no, like a, a spirit chart isn't worth that. Like there are better ways for people to get money for spirit charts. If you want to sell 10,000, yeah, sure. T- take the easy way. If you only want to sell like 20 or 50, then, then you have much better ways of making gold mm-hmm. with a spirit chart. That's, that's like some, some parts of disagreements we've had, like, or, or just in general trying to like maintain an economy by putting people in cases. I like that either. Mm. Another person that I had a, a much heated take was, uh, was the, the other Frenchman making economy content. Not, not to say his name, but I'm pretty sure you're aware of it if you've checked my channel. I mean, lately, so. your video's out there. I've, I watched the video yesterday, I think. It's, it's, it's a cello okay. frag, I think, is the, is the exactly. handle the person yeah. use. Um, yeah. yeah, I didn't know if we get here, but I'm, I'm really interested in, to hear more about your take on this. Um, my understanding is, um, and based on what I've heard from you, because I haven't interacted with him or his content myself, I... I find giveaways to be pretty nauseating, just personally. I I'm, I don't really like. It's this not my either. bag. Um, it's but, important uh, for growing as a content creator. Like it, it is such a great way of growing. Yeah, I'm sure it is. And looking at me, you can tell. <laughs> maybe my disdain for giveaways is not the right way to go. Um, <laughs> but regardless of my personal uh, inclinations. Um, what you brought to the table seemed to be basically the idea that there was a exchange of ultimately an exchange of real money for potential in-game gains that straddled the line of what was, what is morally correct and a bunch of seeming observations that seem to suggest that there was not an earnest there is not enough earnestness on beha- on behalf of this person to deliver on the value they've promised. Um, exactly. Yeah. That that were the two main points of the video that you very well summed up. Okay. Um, the the idea behind the video was to to explain why the current system is not okay in the way it is being made. Um, well, first of all, he. I won't disclose the exact number because I'm aware of it because as I explained in the video, in the comment section of it, I do speak with him. Like we have spoken for hours on end. Okay. Because I I made him know very early on that I disagreed with everything he was doing. Oh, interesting. And he was like, okay. yeah, but I'm still going to do it. I was like, okay, sure, but I, <laughs> I still disagree. No matter how small I am compared to you, do know that I disagree. Okay. So that was, and, um, 
and I, you know, I just, I just confronted him about it. I was like, okay, I know, like, I know you're making a lot from this. And he showed me the figures. It was even more than I was thinking. Hmm. Like, I could say very, very honestly that he makes more than twice what I make having a regular job in finance. Good for him. No, that's, that's great for him. On top of that, he is a medicine student. He's promised to a bright future. You know, like okay. he's... Like he's gonna be swimming in Scrooge McDuck pool of gold, you know. Okay. Um, Absolutely interesting putting, metaphor. Go on. Putting the putting the matter of pure monetary gain aside, I, I felt like the the fact that he gets so many people to participate with money for something where he gives only a portion back, and on top of that, his content being very clickbaity and maybe not too in-depth, made me feel wrong about it. Because I was like, if you're, if you're going to market knowledge, if you're going to like market a course, if you're going to market something like that, at least have it be 100% accurate, 100% perfect. Because if you're, if you're going to sell something that is as important as, so to speak, education or knowledge to someone, then it has to be good. Mm. It has to be good because that's, that's going to become a defining part of how they apprehend economy, the world, something. It's the so act of creation you talked about. Yeah. Each which is why, exactly. Which is why all of my content, except the actual spreadsheets, is free. Okay. I'm, mm-hmm. To people, I'm like, I'll, I'll show you in a video how to make one yourself. But if you want the one I already made, then that's $1 once in your life, and then you have mm-hmm. them. Because I'm like, if, if someone really wants them one dollar is like okay like people won't die from one dollar less like yeah that's a very nominal transaction like two coffees it's fine you can go without them i did it you can do it yeah that's that's yeah behind it i was like my my content is always going to be one so here we're comparing uh the way that you're using patreon to the way that that channel frag is using Patreon, just to make sure that we're comparing apples to apples and people understand what we're talking about. You have a Patreon. I actually threw in a buck because I wanted to see what your content looked like before, uh, you know, part, all part of the research. Thank you. Oh, you're that welcome. Nice. I've definitely you derived more than $1 way. of that. Sorry? Dollars go a long way. You wouldn't imagine. I, I, I get what you mean. Uh, and yeah, like you definitely delivered more than $1 worth of value to me. So it's, it's easy. It was an easy choice for me to make. Um, and, uh, in the video, what you spelled out is, uh, let me see if I am recapping this correctly. Uh, the cello frags Patreon is built on the idea that if you buy in at certain tiers, you get access to, uh, to giveaways. And the more, the higher a tier you buy on, the more lucrative the giveaway you buy in at. And the way, so you don't get, you aren't guaranteed to get something. Um, No, it's it's a good box. It's a gamble. But but I mean, statistically speaking, if you buy in for X number of months, you're likely to get Y number of, of payout. And I think you actually made a monetary assessment to say it's worth roughly X amount. And when you look at it that way, it kind of looks like this person is selling in-game items for real-world money. And also just... adding a layer of loot box on top of it. Yeah. Which That's is, what which I got. Is, it's gray zone. Yeah. 
the, the yeah. fact that there is this element of gambling, he's going to be like, y'all are supporting me. You will, you all are supporting my content. Like, yeah. whether you decide to pledge five dollars or one hundred and fifty dollars, you're supporting the content. And then to thank the people supporting me, I'll give away a fixed amount of items that is obviously inferior to the amount of patrons. Mm-hmm. And whether you get one or not, whether you get the cheap thirty dollar thirty gold precursor or the, the five hundred one, all of that random. So. I didn't even so, realize this person was delivering teaching content. I thought it was all giveaways. Actually, if you, if you take his channels, that's, that's something I won't take away from him because, as I said once again, I've discussed at length with him, and there is, there is a striking amount of resemblance between him and I, hmm. not only based to the fact that he, he doesn't live that far away from my hometown. I mean, that far away from it. We're, we're from the same region of France. No, not, not next door. It's like, I think it's like two hours by car. But like two hours by car on the scale of France, it's, it's like small on the scale of the United States. It's like next door, right? I get it. Sure. Yeah. So like two hours by car. I mean, it's, that's the distance that we go to go see my grandparents every second weekend. So you guys live so close together. How else are, what are your similarities? We're only like one year apart in age. Okay. Like we, it might not look like it. Like I'm... Like, I don't know if you know Ron my age. Like, I'm, I'm 26. Okay. So I'm quite, quite a young man. He's like 27 or 28. Okay, fair. He's quite, like, I mean, we're within the same age range. We're from the same region of France. Both of our parents have the same level of education, so we're raised in rather similar backgrounds with access to okay. the same materials to teach ourselves, etc. So we're, we're quite similar in the way we were brought up. Like, maybe not in terms of of values, of teachings, etc., but in, in terms of what we were exposed to. Yeah, demographically, same exactly. part of the world, yes. similar yeah. level, similar... Uh, mm. It's like, uh, he could have been somebody... Socioeconomic status. Yeah. It's like, I, would, I could have hung out with a guy like him at school. Actually, most of the friends I had in high school went to study medicine the same way he did. Mm-hmm. Like, we would have been in probably, maybe not friends, but in the same group of people hanging out together. Okay. Uh, which is why I can understand a lot of the stuff that he's that he's doing, right? And the the, the only thing that I didn't agree with was that the, the way he was he was like teaching is, is not good. Which is also a shame because as I was saying, his better content, the one thing I won't take away from him, the content that is watched the most on his channel, the, the highest view videos, at the top are silo covers of popular video games or series songs hmm. or musics. And then second, come the gold-making guides. Mm-hmm. So his guys are very heavily edited, very, very qualitatively edited. His seller covers take a lot of effort. Like I myself have 10 years as, as a musician behind me. Mm-hmm. I can 100% respect the fact that to this day, he still puts practice into his instrument. Okay, mm-hmm. I had to stop at some point. He never stopped. I respect that deeply. I didn't know he did um, music. Huh. You know, I have been so turned off by the giveaways, I haven't even looked at anything else that, that this person does. I'm learning a lot in this conversation. Yeah, like, he's, he's seller. I mean, that's, that's where the seller frag of seller. Like yeah, the seller makes sense. He's, he's a cellist, and he is a good one. Like, he, he is at professional level. 
He could nice. make career on that. Mm. I gotta respect that. Like, I mean, I, I stopped saxophone when I stopped playing the saxophone. I was at the point where I was also starting to be on like some jazz scenes. I was starting to do okay within my city. Uh, and he he's the kind of person who, within his uh, his establishment, would be invited to play to other cities. So it's pretty big. Gotta respect that. Sounds like you really compare uh, yourself to this guy. Not exactly comparison as in who's doing better than the other, but comparison as in we actually did the same thing. And I respect the fact that he's doing these things because I tried them and I know it's hard. Okay. Like, Give I props. Yeah, like, which is, which is exactly what I'm saying. God, I respect him for that. Because yeah. I've done it, he's done it, and I, like, I know it's hard. I you know it's hard, him. and he's further ahead than you, so you respect that. I mean, like, I mean, it's it's a matter of decision. It's not really a matter of being further ahead. It's a matter of... I mean, like, on the music front. Yeah. yeah. Like, just sticking to something you're doing. Like, um, we all make different choices in life, and I respect his choice to keep doing something this hard. Yeah. Uh, and, the, the yeah, the real thing I don't agree with is that his second most viewed content, the gold-making guides, are very... They're, they're very surface level. Like he mm. doesn't go deep into into concepts. He doesn't explain too much stuff. He's just like uh, he's he's seeking words left and right and trying to attach some concepts to it. But it's a mismatch. It's not exactly correct. Mm. If he actually read some material, he would probably be able to fix this content. Okay. Which is why I disagree with, and there are there are so many gold making channels from the givers to YouTube scene that are going to tell you uh, sell your spirit charts this way, or um, learn flipping with this one easy trick, or yeah. this is what they did to make five hundred gold a day, etc. You're you're going to have a lot of very clickbaity content selling people and one, one method to make money, which, which is which is probably not the if best. If it was easy, everyone well. would be doing it anyway. Exactly. So it's so it's it's either not sustainable in the longer term, uh-huh. or it's not as good as presented. Generally, it's one of these two, and that's something I really don't agree with. Because if you're if you're gonna do something as noble as important as imparting knowledge onto someone and thus creating knowledge in someone from nowhere, then you shouldn't give them something that's half-assed, and especially you shouldn't give that. For a monetary gain. That's where I draw the line. I'm not cool with that. Okay. So let me see if I'm getting all this. Yeah. This is a this is a person who, under very similar circumstances to you, made some different choices. One of those choices is to is to further continue pursuing music, which you really respect because you know it's not easy to do. And he has some some achievements he's he's regarded and he's has some some work out there on youtube that you seem to like in terms of the cello playing which i, I know is not easy i, I spent a, a year studying at a music conservatory when i was courting my wife who was an opera singer at the time um so i have a lot of respect for that game too and but what i think i hear you 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 the reason you bring that up is because you're contrasting that with your perception of quality of his um gold making guides mm-hmm. and you you see the expertise you see you respect 
the ability to produce the music to do that kind of thing. And it's almost like he's, is it almost like he's disrespecting your, your knowledge and ability to understand the economy and produce the guides. And by producing what he does, which is, as you say, perhaps not as robust and layering on top of that, this giveaway thing, which gives it all a feeling to me, a feeling like, you know, sometimes I, I go to restaurants where I never see anybody like this is before the pandemic, before the lockdown, I go to restaurants and there's never anybody there. Like if I knocked a waitress might pop out from the back room and there'd be one, one cook back there making food. And I'd be like, what's the deal with this place? Is it like a mafia front? Like <laughs> the, 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 the trope from movies of, of the restaurant, the, the, that's the mafia front. And it's, it's just there to be a legit business to discard, to disguise something that's, that's uh, immoral. And, I look at the picture you're painting of um, what Cello Frag is doing, and it seems like almost like that kind of idea where there's the suggestion of a gold-making guide, the suggestion of a restaurant up front, which is there to be a cover for the gambling and the giveaways, which um, ties back an interesting way to an earlier point in our conversation. But where you also that don't is, see the value. But that is that is very correct what you're saying, and I, I think that I'm and I'm actually gonna gonna expand on like the, the respecting for the music part, etc. It's I like he is doing this thing which I respect. He's doing this thing which he's good at, which is music, and I have a lot of respect for that. Which means that I would have respect for that person. Yeah, and then. Then like I, I know that he puts a lot of effort into this craft. Like, mm-hmm. He he took it to a certain level. I respect mm-hmm. that. Then he would kind of stoop low, like to stoop as low as to as to to make content that serves as a facade to then justify him receiving large amount of of money, which mm-hmm. kind of like validates the whole look. Uh, I got rich because of what I say I'm doing. Then it all feeds itself. And yeah. I'm like, how, how can you like be so dedicated, be put some such effort into like editing your video, like the, make such a big thing. And then, and then like the, the core of it is so wrong. What, yeah. what would you do that? Like if you're, it, it kind of feels wrong to say it like that, but I guess it's a little bit of, if you're as good as I see you, why are you going to do that? Yeah, it's a little bit of that, but it's also a little bit of if if you're gonna if you're gonna make something that is targeted at people and meant to help them, why would you make something that is like half right, half wrong, and then basically tell them, "But I'll sell you the, the best information for thirty euros a month." Yeah, it's like a like snake just, oil sale. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm not too cool with that. Like that's look that's at my hairline. I mean, okay. My hairline's terrible, but imagine a fantasy world where I have a hairline and you say, look, I restored my hairline with this snake oil. You want to buy some? And they don't know yeah. if that has anything to do with the way your hairline is. Maybe you're wearing a wig. Like yeah, exactly. you can tell a story and use your, insert yourself into it in a way that's not authentic. And 100%, yeah. is it your sense that Cello Frag understands that the content is not of a high quality 
so I guess what, what I'm asking is, is it like, is it an, uh, a deception or is it just a difference in ability? Maybe he doesn't understand that it's not high quality. I, I think that the, the language barrier has a lot to do with that. Cause okay. he, he is a pure product of French education, which means that his English is really terrible. Like okay. my English is like average. I mostly learned through reading, as I told you earlier. Okay. Which that I, my pronunciation can be very wrong. I'll put accents on the wrong spots. I'll sometimes uh, like adapt a verb quite badly to the tense I'm meant to use. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll have You're perfectly hiccups. understandable. I don't have any trouble yeah. understanding you. Well, thank you then. But yeah. I'll, I'll have these hiccups. But in, in France, we're never taught to speak English. We're very poorly taught to understand written English. That's the only thing we are. Mm-hmm. So naturally, to formulate a thought in English and then being able to speak it out loud is, is a tremendous effort for the average French person. Uh-huh. And that's really a problem in our educa- educational system. Mm. So there is a little bit of that, the language barrier. Like some of the terms he uses would make sense in a French sentence with a French structure. And when he says it in English, it's it completely misses the point. Okay. There, there's a little bit of that. And then there is also part of the fact that he, he thinks what he's making is good. And he receives positive feedback on it, which takes mm. us back once again to how you react to feedback. Right. And um and I guess that's good enough for him because Let's say, let's say you make a video about the economy tomorrow. Ah. Let's say you, you think, no, I mean, let's say you understand some stuff. You're like, okay, now I'm going to make a I video and explain things. all of that. Yeah. Yeah. And you're going to explain all of that. You accompany it with top-notch editing, very good quality commentary. You, you put mm-hmm. a little bit of, of refurb and, and deepener on your voice so it sounds super good and suave, right? <laughs> and and that, that makes it... Nice to listen to, nice to watch, nice to, to get in. Uh-huh. And, and you like half miss the point on what you're explaining because you're not using the right term to describe what you want to say. Like your concept is about where it should be at, but you're really using the wrong word. Mm. So if, if anyone Googled what you explained, they would be completely misled. They would be like, but that's not what he said, right? They, they, would, they would be misled. Let's say you do that. Okay. You get... A lot of views, hundreds of thousands. You get so many likes. You get so many positive comments. And then at the end of it, the end of that video, you, you get among the comments a few people whom, whom you know are, you know, dabbing to the economy side of stuff. Let's say I comment on it, Emco comments, mm-hmm. Gilda Mem comments on it. And it's like, um, okay, like what, what you said is not exactly correct. You're going to mislead some people. If you, if you want to do it correctly, you should probably try and like use a better example or maybe replace what you did, which is very, uh, very random or very lucky with something that's actually more plausible for the general mm-hmm. public. Uh, maybe you should do that to make, to make your content more accurate. And maybe like only 1% of the comments is going to be these people telling you what, what you're doing looks good on facade, but it's, mm-hmm. it's literally a one-trick wonder. Like you got lucky on that one, and you should not tell people to do that. Even if you put the fancy words on it, you misuse them, and what you show is really not good. And, and just because it worked for you doesn't mean other people are going to be able to be able to implement it successfully. Because exactly. 
Because as a result of you it's, making this content, you're going to change the economy. Not, not even necessarily that. Just, just what you did might have been maybe the extremely lucky one. For instance, uh, in some point of this video, uh-huh. he flips the legendary. He buys one for cheap, sells it for higher, and he's like, that's what I do all day. I just flip the legendaries, man. That's how I make all the gold. Mm. And, and you know, I'm going to look at the figures. I'm going to look at the stats. I'm going to look at the graphs. And I'm going to be like, there is no way this is profitable yeah. any other time. One time where he got lucky and did it. So he cherry-picked okay. the example, basically. He, he, cherry-picked, he cherry-picked an example and was like, this is what I do all the time, this is what works. And, and misrepresented you know, it. Yeah, and misrepresented it. That's one, that's one thing we called him out for. We're like, okay, I mean, that's cool. You got lucky on that one. But you can't tell people that this is the standard. You mm-hmm. can't tell people that this is the way because you're just mm-hmm. going to mislead them. Just because you have a high gold count and pretend this is the thing doesn't mean that it is correct. And if people pay you because they believe you, you're going to help them out because, after all, you, you manage to make this work, then you're, you're leading them on, and that's not cool. Maybe you should adapt your content. But since 99% of the people are just going to be like, hey, dig, you're the best one. You really taught me the way. I'm going to make so much gold now. Thank you so much. You're going to be like, why would I listen to the haters, eh? Haters are going to hate. Yeah, exactly. Don't hate that's, the player, that's hate the, the game. Yeah, that, that's the point where we got, you know, like be, between him and I in our in our DMs, in our you know off off screen contact. Uh, he understands what I mean. Like I'm like, okay, like this was all too good, etc. And he's like, yeah, I can see where you're coming from. But to all his fans, I'm just a hater. Haters, mm. they're just they're just gonna be. So there's a two face in this aspect of it too, where when you interact with him. He indicates that he understands and accepts your feedback, but then the way he acts publicly after after that suggests that he didn't mm. accept your feedback. Yeah, and that's that also leads us to another thing, which is which I respect. He is without any qualms better than most of the people who graduated in marketing from my business school. Mm-hmm. He obviously hasn't taken marketing classes. He seems to be all he's over doing it. stuff. He's stuff doing everywhere. stuff by the book. Like he's he's doing very clean online marketing. Like I was, I myself worked in online marketing for a few months in a in a mid-sized company selling cosmetic products. Mm-hmm. Specialized in uh, in black skin, actually. Like that that was actually very fun because I'm I'm literally the whitest you can get. Everybody was black at the workplace, and I was like, I'm just gonna work on the website lens. I, I'm just here to do your uh, your search engine optimization. Some some like uh, optimization on, on the web pages. That's all. Uh-huh. That's all what I'm here for. <laughs> Fair I enough. didn't understand actually the products when they were like, "Yeah, you, you've got like four types of hair," and then it divides into um, another four types of how deeply it's turned on itself. I was like, "Miss me with all that stuff." I don't get it. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was that was kind of fun of an experience, and it's Sounds just like a unique, unique experience. The ropes of online marketing. Oh, you've got a bot in your chat that you might want to ban. Thank you. Uh, yeah. I, um, let me click that. I want to become famous. <laughs> okay, let me help you out. I'll, I'll click as well. <laughs> uh, jokes aside, uh, I, I learned I learned that you know on the spot, and I looking at what he does. He's doing it by the book. It's very it's very good. It's very clean. Like maybe he missed a calling in life. He would have been a great online marketer for sure. And uh, and that's that's like one thing he does very right is he he shows he shows his content and himself 
in the, the best guys, like under under the best spotlight. Mm-hmm. It's just what he does. He does well on that. That's also one thing I can respect because once again, it's something I've done, and I know it's not easy. And he's doing it. So like obviously, he's able to put effort into something and make it good. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So yeah, but I think okay. we shouldn't stay for too long on on the matter of him because I've like you know gone at length on my idea of him. So. Well, I think that's. I, think that's I appreciate it. you breaking it down. I definitely feel like I've learned something other on top of what you said in the video, and I get it. Um, and yeah, it's it's one of those things where we all should take. I I, I really like, appreciate what you said before that actually about um, teaching being an act of creation, and uh, something you started to say. I, I think if I was understanding it correctly, is that. When you teach someone something, you're kind of like imbalancing the universe in one way or another, in some way. And you should be careful about how you choose to tip the scales. You should take care. You should be deliberate. And if you choose to do something that is misrepresented, then what you're doing is probably not great for the world. And whereas if you're doing something or, or, or if you're teaching something that, that you know is not complete or not as good as it could be, you're taking advantage of the world by cheating it of the value that you are representing. Even though the thing that you're potentially very good at is not making the thing itself, but then, but then turning around and presenting it and marketing it. I get it. Like it hangs together in my head, even if I'm not saying it very clearly, why this would no, be upsetting to you and your values. Okay. Yeah. It's just that as you as you say, there is there is a matter of balance whenever you're you're teaching something. Because if you're gonna teach something super well and you know it's gonna have an impact, then you should teach it to a moderate amount of people. If you if you teach something wrong to people, then either you're going to exploit them or someone later on is going to exploit them because they're going yes. to have the, the actual quality knowledge. And if you decide to just like teach everyone something of super high quality for no cost at all, then at some point that, that knowledge or what it can be applied to achieve will become worthless as well. Yeah. Like for, for instance, some some knowledge that's like so basic it's now worthless i don't know how to use microsoft word maybe i was yeah. trying to think of like looking at the items or around me but like okay let's say or or maybe you know okay like how how to use microsoft well, word like anybody can open it yeah. type on the keyboard there is no value to that knowledge because everybody has it. It's mm-hmm. become something super basic and it's about what you're going to produce as, as an end result and that's purely due to what you were thinking about putting in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, another example, I don't know, another example that's kind of simple, but the knowledge that everyone has, I don't know. Like, I think about like knowledge about how to present yourself like for if, if you're doing job seeking. Like, yeah. If you pretend to be, if you, if you act like an expert on interviewing and doing resumes and presenting yourself, 
but you really aren't an expert. But you're, what you're really good at is presenting yourself and your service. Then that's kind of a not that, that's kind of an immoral act because mm-hmm. you, you're you're extracting value from people and you're passing on teachings that act like high value teachings, but actually are low value. And so people have a understanding of their competence. You're you're creating a um, a gap between a person's understanding of their of their competence and their actual competence. You're you're setting them up to fail yeah. in a way. Yeah. Anyway. That, is, that is correct. And it's okay. um, there. There is also one underlying thing behind that, which is actually interesting. It's the idea of the self fulfilling prophecy. Okay. For for instance, is let's say let's say I tell you, I'm the best one when it comes to um, to I don't know uh, repair cars. Okay. I'm going to tell you that I'm the best when it comes to repairing cars. Yeah. I'm going to I'm going to tell you. Okay. Okay. I'll show you what. I'm going to I'm going to be successful with my car fixing business and i'm going to teach a lot of people how to fix cars as good as me you're going to see how much money i make and that's okay. going to be proof of what i'm saying tomorrow i'm going to get a hundred people i'm going to teach them how to fix a car they're going to pay me for that i have a lot of money now i'm going to back to you and i'm going to be like okay yesterday see i taught a hundred people how to fix cars. look how rich i am mm-hmm. then you won't be able to find any argument against me because i'm going to be like you could say like, but no, you're not. You're not that good at fixing car. Like, okay, can you show me that you're fixing car as well? And I'm gonna be like, look, so many people can vouch for the fact that I fixed a car, and I have so much money to prove that I know how to fix cars because they, they pay me to learn how to fix car from me. Mm-hmm. See, that becomes a self fulfilling prophecy. It's if at some point I say I'm good at something, let me show you how good I am because I'm gonna mm-hmm. show people. They're gonna say that I'm good, and you're and I'm gonna be able to show you a receipt of of money. Yeah, that that uh, that scales with the trust that people have in my ability. Yeah, then then you're going to be like, okay, then you have the ability. And the assumption that you take on is that you are taking on risk that people will expose you, and that you'll you'll lose your um, cachet, your approval, your validation. Just need the first batch of people you teach to either disappear in nature after they've proven that you were good by buying your your like yeah. class or whatever it is, or you need some of them to be very vocal about their own success and how it is tied to yeah. what you've done. That's basically the whole business of online marketing of classes, mm. or, which is something I have a lot of interest into. Interesting, or like. Is is it would it be accurate to say also just just to have like the number of likes or views or dollars earned just just a high metric to point to exactly that, look, all these people bought metric. this yeah and that's yeah, the yeah, proof yeah. that that's valued like I mean it's hard to argue yeah, with yeah. that but at the same time it's not a, it's not a direct marker of the value of what you do it's a a downstream marker to say it was valuable therefore I was paid if you trust these people. Uh, yeah, it, 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 it again goes back to all this. This, how do we assess trust? Exactly, and and like we go back to the start of the conversation, and it's super interesting. It's it's like how metrics, how you present them, the narration you put around them, 
how all of that influences the final result. You might not need to provide any result at any time in your life mm-hmm. if you're able to say, but there are this many people who believe in my capacity to produce a result, which means that I am able to produce a result, and you should assume that I can produce that result. I may never have produced this result earlier, but so many people believe in it that it's become the truth. Are you familiar with uh, Theranos? Yeah. Are it's, you? Uh, okay. I have, I have a question for you. I yeah. have a video recommendation, if you've never watched it, okay. called Fusion TV. Do you what, know what that it? YouTube channel? Cold Fusion TV. It's a YouTube channel, which I think you will love. I'm sorry for, you know, shilling something out on your podcast. Oh, no, it's fine. Podcast, it's fine. On your feed. That's, he's, he's like, I think he's an Australian YouTuber. I'm not okay. sure about Australian. Maybe he's, he's a New Zealander from that part of the world. YouTuber. He makes very well-crafted documentaries. Where did Bitcoin come a- from? $69 million for a JPEG file, the wild world of NFTs, the Apollo 13 disaster. This looks super interesting. He's really into the world of finance and technology, and his videos are very, uh, very explanatory, very well-crafted, super high-quality editing, very calm videos and quality explanations. Just It's great to listen to, and he had a 20-minute-long video on Theranos, uh-huh. which is... Exactly why I instantly reacted and I was like, yeah, like I, I heard about that and I know the story and how we can draw parallels. Yeah. So for those who it's don't crazy. know what the Theranos is, uh, I'm just going to read the first paragraph off of the wiki. Theranos was an American privately held health technology corporation. It was initially touted as a breakthrough technology company with claims of having devised blood tests that required only very small amounts of blood and could be performed very rapidly using small automated test devices the company developed. However, these claims were proven to be false. Founded in 2003 by 19-year-old Elizabeth Holmes, Theranos raised yada yada a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And uh, basically, it turned out that they were faking these all along and there was never anything real about it. And this this person, Elizabeth Holmes, had created this kind of cult of personality around herself that seemed to be patterned off of Steve Jobs a little bit. And uh, I don't know, I haven't looked into it, it's so in-depth, but like... You'll definitely that, enjoy the video on the channel I recommend. I will check it out. That, that kind of risk you take on by extracting value, by misrepresenting the truth, um, man, you better be comfortable with that risk. Oh, I don't know, I don't know what, what Elizabeth Holmes is doing today, but I guarantee you she's never going to run another tech company. Yeah, like it's it's something I wouldn't be able to do. Like I need to believe in what I do to be able to accomplish it. And it's it's quite interesting because, and I think this should probably be one of my own closing thoughts uh, because okay. it's getting quite late for me. It's nearly 3 a.m. now. There uh, you go. <laughs> one, one of the things that is very important in the field I work with I work in nowadays, which is corporate finance, is narration and controlling a narrative. So Mm -hmm. we say the best way to make a budget for a company and to take it in the direction you want to take it into is to create a story around it. So let's say you're going to be like, okay, like people, you see the company, how it is today. Yeah. I want within the next year that people refer to us as the more premium brand. 
Mm-hmm. I want them to, to cultivate that idea, that thought. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to invest into this part of our retail uh, system. We're going to invest into this campaign on the internet. We're going we're gonna to maybe make a few more posters to put in the streets. We're going we're gonna to do that. And this is, this is the story we're going to build to get to where we want to go. And you, you're just going to be like, we, we won't become premium tomorrow, but we will act like we're premium. People will see that we premiumized some stuff. We'll become premium in their mind. Mm-hmm. And you just, you just always try to, to have a story that makes sense and then put the means to achieve it so that people will realize that it is a fact. Yeah. And, uh, and I think that this is very important when it comes to whatever you're trying to do in life. That's something that I'm trying to apply as a content creator. It's I want people to think that that I am a trustworthy, good source for content, information, educative videos, which means that I need to put the the effort into going in that direction to tell people my content is educative and then to show them content that has educative value so that what I say what I do align with what I want them to see in me. And I, and I think that's like the, the best way to know if you're doing good in life. It's what, when what you say and what you do are in phase with what you're being seen for, then you're, you're probably doing well. I'll drink to that, man. <laughs> Jesus. Like I, I just wanted a closing, simple closing thought on, on where I wanted to take my content. That's a good one. More, more so educative stuff. Like, that's a good one, That's... man. We'll, we'll, we'll close it on that. So, right. Sam, tell people where they can find you. Okay, that's the, the, the shilling section. So, as wonderfully put onto, onto the screen by Deed right here, you might find me on Twitch and Twitter under the handle Samajeste with uh, an A and a Y at the end. Uh, I usually stream two to three times a week. Uh, mostly some Guild Wars 2 PvE content, which is a subject we didn't go too deep on, even though we, we have many things yeah. to say about that. Yeah, uh, Rocker said a lot of stuff in a very good way. So if you want the PvE content, go watch Rocker's interview from Dig right over there. A great one. Um, uh, so yeah, so I do some of that PvE content, and once a month we have a Raiding League stream where I showcase performances from the players partaking into the rating aspect of the game. If you're more into the economy side of things, uh, there is my YouTube under the handle Sa Majesté with that cute little French accent at the end. And on there, there are mostly economy videos that are meant to be teaching you how to make gold in Guild Wars 2, but also teach you how to use Excel, how to get a little bit better with tools, how to manipulate some data. It is quite interesting if you want at some point to better understand finance or maybe even work in the field. So there's that. That's going to be it from me, Dig. It's uh, the make is back to you in the studio. Yeah. Oh, I had a momentary hitch there. I think we're all good though. Great. Well, thanks, Sam. Um, This has been, this exceeded my expectations. You have answered so many questions about, how the economy works, and I feel motivated to jump in and check my account to see how many gifts of exploration I have sitting in my bank. I'm sure it's at least one. Uh, 
and uh so much this has been such a such a great time um as for me i'm deeg um if you're watching this you're probably on youtube and it was this was recorded live on twitch twitch.tv slash deeg tv um in addition to these um interviews that happen um periodically um i'm also streaming every single monday night talking about whatever weekly news and topics uh strike my fancy lately i've been covering quite a lot of uh ideas from a game called planet side which is uh a real unique title and i love talking about games and gamers and all the culture in between this has been great thank you for having me so thanks sam thanks chat and thanks everyone watching this after the fact love y'all good night bye, -bye.